You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime. www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Tonight we're going to be talking to a Data East, Sega, and Stern programmer. Somebody that worked on a lot of their games, starting in 1994 with Guns N' Roses, Maverick, Frankenstein, Baywatch, Apollo 13, Goldeneye, Twister, Viper, and Mini Viper, Independence Day, Space Jam, Star Wars Trilogy, The Lost World Jurassic Park, X-Files, Starship Trooper, Lost in Space, Golden Q, Godzilla, and then with Stern in their South Park, striker slash nfl games in playboy so he certainly had a lot of programming experience special guests special guests special guests special guests so now we're going to be talking to oren day of data east sega and stern and be giving him a call right now to talk about some stories in his uh, time he spent as a programmer at data east sega and stern Warren? Yes. It's Clay. Hey, Clay. How you doing? Good. How you doing? I'm doing good. So you got some time? Sure do. Okay. Let's start at the beginning. When did you first get involved with pinball? I mean, was this a, a youth thing or a business decision out of college? Or, you know, how did you get involved? Uh, well, it was initially a youth thing. But when I was a kid, uh, we used to go to a resort down in Siesta Key, Florida, that had two pinball machines. They had a volley and a super soccer. Volley by Gottlieb? Gottlieb from uh, 74 and 76, I believe. Uh, yeah, right. The soccer was 74 and the um, volley was 76. Volley's a cool game, actually. Um, I'm not a big fan of super soccer or soccer, but I really like volley. A lot of drop targets. Volley is uh, my wife's favorite game. Well, it's got that lady on the play field the kind of sexy lady you know kind of i think it was i heard that that game was made uh with uh you know what were the two kind of uh uh, i don't want to uh bobby king and somebody or else billy jean king and uh well the guy has blue hair so i don't know who he is yeah right right it was kind of the um i think it was kind of in in regard to that you know the loosely themed around that yeah yeah, but uh, anyway, those those two were great games, and uh, uh, I really loved playing those. And the uh, uh, problem was there really weren't a whole lot of mechanical pinballs around when I was, uh, you know, eight or nine years old at places that I could get to. So really the only time I played pinball was, was at Easter time when we would go take a couple weeks at spring break and go to that resort. Then when I was old enough to, uh, old enough to go to arcades, um, a strange thing had happened. Uh, there weren't any mechanical games anymore. They were all solid state. And it was games, I think, probably like Fathom and Centaur. And I would play those games, and I would just get killed. I was no good at any of them. Uh, that that uh, would last too long, much quicker than the mechanical games. And uh, for a long time, I didn't play pinball very much. 
uh, I really did not get back into it until I was in college, and uh, then started uh, uh, playing games uh, like uh, Cyclone and uh, Space Station and Fire and uh, some of those uh, some of those Williams games. Where where were you going to school and what were you studying in? Uh, I was at Duke and uh, uh, majoring in physics and math. Hmm. Uh, down here in uh, Durham, North Carolina, where I live now. Uh, and we had a wonderful arcade. It was called the Devil's Quarters. And uh, they had, uh, uh, at the time, they had probably between 12 and 14 pinball machines, a ton of video games, uh, a checks hockey, uh, a couple pool tables. And uh, that was a place where uh, where I spent a lot of time. Uh, playing playing pinball and playing video too. Uh, I remember playing a lot of uh, Super Basketball, which is actually uh, actually the game where one of the cheers that the Duke students at uh, basketball games uh, do came from. That oh. when they say boink 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 pass when the other team has the ball and is dribbling, that came right out of Super Basketball. Not a lot of people know that, hmm. uh, but uh, uh, sort of. Uh, Devil's Quarters was actually pretty good uh, in terms of getting not brand new games, but sort of second time around games that uh, uh, they would they would generally get. Duke would Duke owned it, operated it. Uh, students worked there, and Duke owned all the games. Uh, Duke vending, and they would get uh, they'd get uh, the games that you know were maybe six to nine months old. So uh, uh, you know they would probably another operator had them traded them in and uh so uh so they started to get the dot matrix games when they came along uh they had a remember seeing uh Daddy's Batman there uh sort of towards the end of my college days they got an Adams uh they had a Gilligan uh I remember playing uh playing all those games there and uh and really enjoyed really enjoyed playing them and uh, uh I decided to stay at Duke uh for grad school Came very close to going to Penn State, but went to Duke uh, for grad school in physics, and uh, kept on playing pinball. And uh, um, while I was in grad school, my first year, uh, a student graduated, got his PhD, and he happened to have a haunted house. Uh, it was a haunted house that uh, had uh, come from Brady down in Charlotte, brand new, uh, and had been at the Devil's Quarters for many years, and. Uh, then, uh, just like all the property at Duke, uh, the only way that they can sell things is through the Duke Surplus store. So it, that pinball machine ended up over at Duke Surplus, and uh, my friend bought it. He fixed it up, had it at his house. And But when he graduated and went off to uh, go look for work as a professor somewhere, uh, he sold it to me. So I ended up with a haunted house hmm. uh, when I was in the apartment as a grad student and uh, never really could get it working. Uh, had some electronics problems, uh, but uh, that sort of cemented cemented my love affair with fixing pinball machines not very well. Uh, but uh, uh, to make a long story long, uh, I only spent one year in grad school. Uh, sort of the job market for physics people was not very good, and uh, a couple of people that I knew from grad school had gone up to uh, Washington D.C. and taken jobs at Goddard Space Flight Center. Uh, working as contractors for NASA uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. And uh, uh, 
went up there and interviewed uh, for a programming job and uh, uh, got a programming job and moved up to D.C. Um, and uh, it was a good job. Uh, and uh, a nice thing about it was that uh, I had good Internet access there, like I did at Duke, uh, and actually started to read Rec Games Pinball uh, quite a lot. What year was this? I actually uh, started reading that news group when it was created. Uh, so when, that was like 90 or 91? 90 or 91. Uh, I graduated undergrad in May of 91. and was in grad school from, uh, grad school from uh, August of 91 through May of 92. Uh, so I moved up to D.C. and uh, I got an apartment uh, right across from up in Laurel, Maryland, right across from the Laurel Mall, which uh, uh, was sort of known for uh, for being the place where George Wallace was shot. Uh, that was right across the street from my apartment. There was a plaque there or something. But uh, uh, I didn't care about that so much as that they had a tilt over there at the mall, and I could pretty much walk right across, and uh, they had a decent lineup of games. Uh, they had an Adams. Uh, and then later on, they got a Twilight Zone, uh, a uh, uh, not a sample game, but an early production game with the green lock light. Uh, they got that when it was new, uh, and uh, they had a couple other games. I don't remember exactly what they had, but uh, uh, we usually we, we mostly played the Adams and the uh, uh, the Adams and the Twilight once it was there. Uh, in fact, uh, we helped. We did a little bit of repair on them. Um, me and uh, Steve Yonke, who was uh, very active on Rec Games Pinball. He's active in the uh, uh, the Maryland uh, Free State Pinball Association. He was one of the people who started that league. Uh, and uh, that was after I left that they started the league. But uh, uh, I met Steve through the news group and a couple other people at Goddard who played pinball. And uh, we had a great time uh, going around to uh, different arcades, playing uh, we did some work fixing the games up at the tilt because there was nobody who knew uh, knew how to fix them. Uh, there was an arcade that was up north of Baltimore that had uh, probably seven or eight games, including uh, uh, Jurassic, which had just recently come out. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, we would just pretty much spend our weekends playing pinball. Uh, Steve had uh, Steve had an eight ball deluxe, and uh, I actually got picked up. Uh, I tried to get that haunted house working, and I uh, uh, went up to uh, the old state sales and took the boards one by one and had them fixed. And I don't know what it was about that machine. It was a haunted, haunted house because I just <laughs> could not get it working. Uh, and uh, uh, ended up uh, buying a second haunted house. I got it from uh, Lloyd Thoburn, uh, who runs Coinop Warehouse, uh, but back then, he was running a place called Lloyd's Jukeboxes that was uh, right down by Dallas Airport. Went down and uh, bought that haunted house, uh, that second haunted house, which was also in very nice shape, I think, for about $400 back then. Uh, nobody really wanted those games. Uh, he had he had just rooms and rooms full of pinball. It was great. I, if, I'd had, if I'd had a lot of money, I certainly would have uh, loaded up on his stuff. But as it was, I just got that, uh, got that one other game. And... Uh, Played a lot of played a lot of haunted house, and uh, spent a lot of time working and a lot of time uh, on rec games pinball, and 
that was pretty much how I got to know the people who were at Data East. Um, I yeah, I was going to ask, how did you transition into this, uh, in a, into getting a job at Data East? That's right. That, uh, um, that uh, there was an event that Data East did uh, in conjunction with uh, the off-Broadway launch of Tommy. And uh, that event was uh, at the Hard Rock Cafe in Dallas. And uh, they wanted to have somebody who was a pinball player to come out and sort of demo the machines and help them run some little mini tournaments uh, at uh, Hard Rock. And uh, um, I volunteered to do it. Uh, I was going to be on a business trip around then uh, in Alabama, and I figured, oh, that's not too far to drive. <laughs> so I uh, took a little vacation time and drove down. Uh, they would have had Lyman do it, but uh, Lyman, uh, who was uh, who had started there, I think, pretty recently, uh, Lyman was on uh, a trip to Spain. I think there was a tournament over there or, or some kind of a show or something, so he was unavailable. So uh, they wanted to find somebody in Dallas, and uh, I emailed uh, Joe Camico and Lonnie Rop and said, uh, well, I'm not, I'm not actually in Dallas. And I'm not actually a world-class pinball player like Lyman, but I'd be glad to go and help you out. So they said sure and, uh, uh, you know, sort of hooked me up. Um, I uh, drove down there and I uh, uh, stayed overnight with uh, uh, with a friend who uh, family lives uh, not too far outside of Dallas and uh, went down to Hard Rock and uh, spent the day with those guys. Um, I think it was uh, it was Lonnie. And Joe Camico and John Borg and uh, Joe Blackwell and Jim Gorman, and uh, I brought some resumes. Of course, I didn't have any game programming programming experience, but uh, I had programmed uh, uh, when I had an Apple II. I programmed tons of stuff in uh, machine language and assembly language and games and you know, stuff like that just for fun when I was a kid. So you know, I had you know some professional programming experience, and I sort of knew sort of knew what they were. Uh, what they were doing, and uh, gave them some resumes, and they said, "Well, you know, the pinball business is very small. Uh, you know, there's only so many jobs. There's, you know, so many jobs at Gottlieb, and uh, so many at uh, so many at Williams, and you know, we've only got four or five programmers. But you know, if we ever have anything, we'll keep you in mind." So uh, uh, that was, uh, I think, that was um, right around October uh, 1993, and so happened that uh, uh, I was going to be back in Chicago, where I, where I originally grew up, um, that next weekend for uh, uh, Columbus Day. We're obviously government employees. We got uh, we got all those holidays that only government employees and school kids get. Right. So I uh, flew back to Chicago, and they invited me to come in on Monday. And uh, I looked around at what they were doing. It was really interesting. Uh, uh, of course, that were the uh, Tommy games that they took to Hard Rock. Uh, were those uh, six pop bumper uh, prototypes with the ramp that uh, the airplane that dropped the ball and uh, had uh, a little bit different ramp configuration. Uh, it had a looping ramp on the left side. Uh, it was uh, it was maybe a little bit more based on Jurassic than anything else. Um, they sort of you know put it together a little bit more quickly. Uh, I think they built that game in six weeks. Right for that yeah for that event. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so I got to see. Uh, uh, I believe I saw. Uh, I think Last Action Hero was on the line. 
and uh, I saw the saw and got to play the Whitewood of Crypt, which was interesting because I'd never seen a Whitewood before. Uh, and uh, you know, spent all the time talking to Lonnie about pinball and you know what what would be fun to do and and stuff like that. But uh, you know, I went back to my job at uh, went back to my job at NASA, and I was I was looking for work then. Uh, uh, being a, a, a low-level contractor in the D.C. area around then uh, uh, was maybe not financially the easiest thing to do. I think actually when I started out, I was in a rent control department uh, that uh, uh, that I made so little money. Uh, I did a little bit better after my first year there, but uh, I was looking for work and thought I might end up back down here in North Carolina. But uh, around the middle of November, uh, there was a post on Rec Games Pinball that uh, uh, they were looking for uh, software engineers for uh, Data East. And I looked at the qualifications and said, you know, I'm not even going to apply for this because, you know, I've given them my resume and uh, I don't think I have those qualifications. So I didn't apply. And uh, uh, about a week later, I get a call from Lonnie. He says, uh, hey, why haven't you applied for the job? And I said, well, I didn't think I qualified. And he's like, well, of course you qualify. Uh, uh, you know, we've got your resume, and if you're still interested, we want to bring you to Chicago for an interview. So uh, they flew me out, uh, I think the weekend before, I think maybe the weekend before Thanksgiving. Uh, and uh, I interviewed on a Friday morning, and uh, uh, everything went very well. Uh, met a lot of folks, and uh, uh, Joe took me out to lunch with Lonnie, and... Uh, at, uh, out at uh, Sorrento's, which is a restaurant where we would uh, down there on Mannheim Road, where it seemed like we uh, conducted a lot of our game design business at lunchtime uh, in later years, uh, made me an offer and I accepted. And uh, uh, Kevin Martin actually came in and interviewed at one in the afternoon, and uh, uh, and he got the job. He he uh, he also accepted a job that day. Uh, hmm. Then uh, so I went back and went back and told the folks at NASA that I was quitting. I was going to start it. At, uh, wait, wait, Kevin. Kevin Martin is the guy that runs Papa, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Kevin, uh, Kevin, and I worked together uh, at uh, at Data East. Uh, that when it was interesting how that how the jobs opened up and there were two spots that uh, uh, Joe and, Joe Camico and uh, Neil Falconer and Lonnie Ropp were having a meeting in his office. Uh, discussing that they were going to add a programmer position, and uh, they uh, they decided that they were going to add one programming job that uh, uh, that uh, they were doing enough games and they maybe wanted to do a little novelty and uh, and needed more people than they had. And uh, as they were having that meeting, uh, Christina Donafrio, who was one of the programmers, uh, she programmed. Uh, uh, Programmed quite a few games. In fact, she was one of the she was the uh, game programmer on Crypt uh, before uh, uh, she left and sort of Neil Falconer finished it up. Um, she came. She knocked on the door and uh, told them that uh, she was going to resign uh, effective uh, the end of October. That uh, the job was too much for her. That she didn't have enough time to spend with her family and her kids and. Uh, that she wanted to go back to to work at Zenith where she'd been before, so and that she'd accepted a job with them. So all of a sudden they had just decided to create one job, and all of a sudden there were two. 
so that you know freed up a little bit of money, and they could bring in sort of two uh, more junior people uh, to uh, uh, to fill in those slots. Um, and this was a pay increase over NASA. Oh yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it, it wasn't a huge pay increase, but in terms of absolute dollars, but in terms of percentages, I think it was like a twenty percent raise. Huh. And uh, the other advantage was that uh, uh, basically all my family uh, was there in the Chicago suburbs. So uh, when I moved back to Chicago, I actually, uh, I actually lived at my parents' house for a couple months before I got an apartment, and it was like uh, a 10 or 12-mile commute to uh, Day East. That's amazing that uh, NASA doesn't pay much money. Well, it was uh, the, the job that I had was, uh, was in a great group, uh, but uh, it was an astronomy group. Uh, you know, we were pretty much do- we were pretty much doing science, uh, and uh, uh, you know, we had a lot of astronomers on the staff, and you know, sort of the you know the folks that had the PhDs were uh, uh, you know were the ones who were uh, uh, better compensated, and, you know, sort of appropriately so, and. Uh, you know, we, we were we were contractors, so it was sort of keeping this contract based on the lowest bid. And uh, they rebid the contract about a year after I was there. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, people's benefits got cut, and nobody got raises and stuff like that. Uh, uh, that uh, the change in the administration happened then uh, when uh, uh, Clinton came in and. Uh, there was sort of a change in priority of what NASA was going to do, that there was a lot of money going into earth mapping. And, uh, you know, instead of uh, uh, um, instead of high-energy astronomy. Hmm. So, uh, uh, so it seemed like sort of the writing was on the wall there, and I needed to make a change of some sort. So when did you actually start work at, uh, at Data East? started on uh, December 13, uh, 1993. And what was uh, what was your first day like, or your first week? Uh, well, it was interesting. I actually started I actually started working there um, before I started. Uh, that uh, uh, when, uh, as I said, I interviewed the uh, I interviewed the Friday uh, the weekend before Thanksgiving, and I actually came back. Uh, I actually came back to uh, Chicago for Thanksgiving. I already had plane tickets. Uh, and since I was going to be leaving, since I was going to be leaving NASA, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't try and just change my tickets around and just, you know, skip Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, uh, you know, I actually needed to go back and resign <laughs> so that I could give them enough notice that uh, uh, that I could leave. Uh, but uh, I actually went in the Friday after Thanksgiving, uh, and that was a very interesting day because uh, Slash was in town, and. Uh, they were uh, working on uh, some of the initial designs for Guns and Roses, so uh, I actually got I actually came in and got to hang out with them. And uh, in the evening, I don't think Slash got there till like 4:30 or 5. He was not uh, he was not an early riser. Did you know that Slash was going to be there? I mean, was that or is that just it was just you know dumb luck? It was just it was just dumb luck that that was when he was going to be there. That. Uh, in fact, I was just uh, I was just reading his uh, his biography. I got it for Christmas, and uh, a very interesting book, though certainly not for the kids. Um, that uh, um, his his uh, his uh, uh, girlfriend at that time uh, was from Chicago, so they were sort of back for Thanksgiving. I think was sort of the thing. 
so this was uh, they weren't guns wasn't on tour or anything like that so uh they just you know flew to chicago and he was around and it was the perfect time to uh perfect time to sort of have a design meeting so uh you know there's all the he had he had some booze uh and uh that was that was sort of interesting to see uh uh to see in the in, in a workplace uh and of course uh he was smoking like a chimney uh uh neil was smoking i think joe actually wa- that was that was actually the meeting where joe walked out of the room and uh and came back into the room wearing a gas mask. <laughs> was he being serious or just being funny? Uh, well, I, I think he was he was being funny, but it was a real gas mask. <laughs> I don't know if it worked or not, but uh but it was uh it it, it was funny and uh it was really sort of neat to see how uh to see how ideas got on paper because that was uh John Borg had sort of his first wide body uh sketch. Uh not even sure if it was an AutoCAD drawing at that point. Uh, they were transitioning into, you know, transitioning into that tool then. Uh, but uh, he brought in that, uh, brought in that play field, and uh, you know, they sort of started laying out inserts and uh, figuring out game features. Uh, um, it was, it was really interesting, and uh, you know, bringing out uh, Joe's very famous, uh, uh, his famous uh, tin of inserts and uh, putting them on the paper. And really, sort of laying, doing sort of that first layout of the playfield. Well, what's Joe's tin of inserts? Is that like something infamous there? Well, it was just it was just sort of this. Uh, I don't remember if it was like an old cookie tin or something that uh, uh, that uh, crackers came in or something like that. But it was just this metal tin that was uh, uh, not bigger than a bread box that uh, basically had uh, a bunch of inserts of all different colors and shapes and. Uh, that's how we would lay out the rules for a play field. That, that he would just dump these things out, dump this out, and uh, you know we'd find the right shapes and colors or whatever we wanted, and put them down on the paper, and then maybe sketch around on the paper or write down what it was or whatever. And then uh, the engineer would, uh, uh, whoever was the designer for the game or the mechanical engineer, would take that paper and go back and uh, drop those inserts down onto the play field. And that's what we would start out with for our first whitewood. So when your white wood was cut there, were they using CNC or was this all done by hand? Uh, I, they were originally done by hand very early at Data East, but uh, typically I think by that point what they would do is they would, uh, uh, I think they transitioned into where they would, uh, uh, where they would take that drawing and they would send it out, and. Uh, Whoever made our play fields at that time would just go ahead and just go ahead and make a white wood for us. Hmm. That it was just uh, it was uh, just uh, no longer cost effective for us to uh, for us to have that uh, have that whole group that were uh, that were doing the white woods. So did you? Uh, what? But the first game that you actually worked on wasn't really Guns and Roses. It what? What was it? WWF uh, Royal Rumble. Well, the the first game that well the first game that I contributed to. Um, was crypt uh, because uh, uh, to sort of get familiar with their diagnostics and their stuff, you know, because I really hadn't been inside of their games all that much. Uh, was uh, to go out in the factory and uh, uh, play a whole bunch of the games that were uh, sort of through uh, uh, through uh, the QA stage and into the QC stage, but uh, not into the box. Go out and play a bunch of crypt and uh, um, 
and uh, sort of, you know, learn about what they were doing and how things worked, you know, playing with the glass off, stuff like that. And uh, actually, while I was out there, found a few bugs and uh, actually brought those back to... Uh, uh, brought those back to Neil Falconer and uh, John Carpenter, who was uh, uh, one of the other dot programmers uh, back then. And uh, you know, so that was so that was really the first game that I did any sort of quote unquote software support. Um, then uh, wait, wait, what, what, like, what kind of bugs did you find? Oh, there was. Uh, uh, I think there was a display bug that I found, and I think there was. Uh, I think there was a shot that when you made it at a particular time that uh uh the sound would go out it would uh it would have a sound call that had some blank there was a sound call that had too high of a priority and would kill the music until you made another shot and uh I think there was also a scoring bug where it said it gave you a certain number of points and it actually didn't uh and it was like a it was like a decent number of points, and it actually, you know, for a combo or something. It was like a three-way combo, and it showed the display effect, and uh, and it didn't give you the points. Uh, so the only reason I really noticed it is, is it was early in the game. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and and Crypt had been on the line for quite a while, so it wasn't like it was, you know, this... And it wasn't like it was this show-stopping... Uh, wasn't like it was this show-stopping bug or anything like that, so... Uh, you know, maybe I found something minor in the diagnostics, but uh, uh, my my job there was going to initially be, you know, helping out with rules and stuff like that. But the the primary job was going to be uh, programming dot matrix, uh, which uh, a lot of people I, th- I think a lot of people understand it now. A lot of people didn't get it. Uh, you know, I said I was a dot matrix programmer. Oh yeah, you you draw all those dots, and I'm like, yeah, well. Uh, the software that I have draws them, but there's actually artists that uh, there's actually artists that actually uh, uh, create that artwork, and then uh, you know I add the text and uh, add the text and sort of uh, you know do the do the the nitty gritty layout. You know they would they would generally say how things should move across the screen and stuff like that. But well, well, the the um, the artist would draw each frame in the animation, and then you would write the the game glue that glued all that stuff together that made the animation actually play set it up as a call so that because that was a separate CPU that ran unlike like say Williams where they had a one sixty eight oh nine that ran you know both the dot and the the game code uh, on your system you were actually using a sixty eight oh nine to run the game code on the CPU board but then you were using something else on the dot matrix controller, a different computer, and so you had to call between these two computers, right? Yeah, that's right. So generally I would, uh, generally I, um, in programming display, I would set up the, I would basically set up what the, you know, what the what the calling convention would be or the interface or whatever, uh, you know, what, what the display effect number was going to be and uh, what needed to be passed, you know, if it needed to be, uh, if it needed to be, uh, you know, uh, a score value if it needed to be uh, the status of some lights on the play field or a row or a column of the mate of the matrix or something like that um, that that I would set that up and generally I would try and set it up so it was it was something that the game programmer already had access to that they wouldn't have to create this custom you know fancy thing or whatever that uh, that they would pass that and uh, uh, you know then I would render that appropriately you know like if it was uh, uh, like if it was uh, um, one of those display effects where you uh, had to complete targets on the play field to spell something. Uh, 
uh, you know, uh, the game programmer would uh, would need to pass what the status of those lights were, uh, so that I could know uh, which which uh, which targets had been completed and which still which hadn't been completed, uh, so that uh, so that I could show the player what they were uh, what they were supposed to do. Now was that a was that a sixty eight oh nine running the code for the display too? Yeah, it sure was. Uh, that uh, it was it was basically a separate modular system, like like you described. That uh, uh, that the display programmer, programmer could go and program display, and uh, the sound programmer, uh, who uh, at that time was Brian Schmidt, who was uh, working from his house uh, up uh, up in Wilmette, uh, up up. Right by the Evanston border, he was right up by Northwestern University. That uh, that he'd been doing, he'd be doing the sound at home, and you know I'd be doing the display upstairs. That uh, well, down initially downstairs, and then I moved upstairs uh, uh, at the 1990 Janus Building, and uh, then the game programmer, uh, usually Lonnie or Neil, would be uh, uh, would be downstairs, uh, and uh, you know I'd work on stuff, and uh, the artist would give me uh, usually a floppy disk. Because uh, we didn't really have, uh, we didn't really use the network for them for that uh, quite so much back then. Uh, artist would uh, artist would give me a floppy disk and a sheet of paper that would uh, basically describe uh, how they wanted the art to get rendered. And I would put together, you know, the art and you know, do sort of a test thing, and you know, ask the artist, you know, is this timing good? Is this what you had in mind? And then add in all the fonts and the text and the descriptions and stuff like that. Uh, and then I would make a paper sheet and uh, take it down to uh, take it down to the game programmer along with the ROM and say, you know, here's the here's the new dots and you know here's these uh, here's these display effects and uh, uh, you know they would go ahead and put them in and then I'd come back later and uh, you know we'd play the rule and uh, see if it worked uh, the way it was supposed to. So like, wh- wh- how did this work? Did like the 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 CPU programmer he would set up. Like um, you know, display effect numbers that would relate to the animations that you were doing, and like, how did you two communicate? Like, you know, that display forty-seven would be, you know, the animation for you know extra ball, or you know, how did you guys actually coordinate all that stuff? Actually, usually the display programmer would be responsible for uh, would be responsible for uh, for setting it up. Uh, but uh, one of the things that I did. Um, when I came in, is that uh, um, it seemed that sort of Lonnie had his preference of you know what the what what the dot effects should be, where you know where they should be, in terms of uh, you know numbered from uh, numbered in uh, in hex from zero zero to ff, and sort of Neil sort of had his own sort of Neil Falconer had his own sort of separate code, and he was you know expecting that you know this might be here and this might be here, and one of the things that I did. Um, at uh, at some point, I think it was probably around the time when we switched back from the uh, from the uh, uh, from the uh, uh, 192 by 64 display back to the uh, uh, 128 by 32. That I sort of standardized as much as I could um, those dot effects and said, you know, uh, that jackpot, for example, is always going to be effect AC. And uh, super jackpot timer is always going to be effect AD, and super jackpot is always going to be effect AE, and extra ball is always going to be effect BE, hmm. and uh, and stuff like that. And uh, and I, ba- I basically made a generic ROM that had uh, sort of generic display effects um, 
that uh, basically they could plug in and have sort of these simple rules and get a game going, um, you know, with those uh, timers and those display effects and stuff like that. And they would be, the, for the most part, the same as the previous game. So they'd be easy to, it would be easy for them to implement. Yeah, they could get rocking and rolling this way without having to, you know, get you, get the artist handing the stuff off to you, handing the stuff off to them. Yeah, and that uh, that became especially important uh, after uh, after I think Goldeneye, um, um, when uh, uh, John Carpenter, uh, who was, well, I, I guess I should talk about the staff really, and then. Uh, when I started, uh, Kevin and I started, uh, I guess I started on a Monday and Kevin started on a Friday. We both started the same week, uh, in, uh, sort of there right before, uh, right before Christmas in, uh, in 93. And, uh, uh, John Carpenter was there, uh, doing, uh, doing display programming. And, uh, Lyman Sheets was there also doing display programming. But he was, he was, uh, feeling sort of like he was ready to get a game. Um, and then uh, Lonnie Rock was there, and uh, Neil Falconer was there. So we had uh, we had that software staff. Um, then when uh, I'm not sure if it was when Lyman left or not that we uh, that we brought in Brian Rudolph, and uh, he was there and uh, programmed Batman Forever, and then did a lot of novelty games. Uh, of course, uh, Kevin and John Carpenter. Uh, Got out, sort of stepped out of the pinball, uh, the pinball loop and, uh, did, uh, the Tattoo Assassins video game, which I was sort of peripherally involved in. I did, uh, I helped them, uh, do some art cleaning and edge cleaning and stuff like that. Never any, not any, uh, uh, not any code writing, uh, for that. Uh, but I stepped in, stepped in and did that. And, uh, uh, when Tattoo was over, Kevin actually left. And, uh, he wanted to move to Pittsburgh, uh, uh, for personal reasons and went and started Pear. Uh, and, uh, John Carpenter's, um, situation was he, uh, he started out, he, uh, after Tattoo was over, uh, he did, uh, some of the dots on, some of the video modes on Baywatch and then did, uh, uh, the majority of the dots for Batman Forever and was set to do Goldeneye and, uh, uh, they, uh, him and his wife, uh, decided to move down to Florida. That they thought that they would benefit from a warmer climate. Uh, and at that point, uh, Joe said, "Well, do we want to hire another display programmer?" And I said, "No. You know, I think I pretty much got the hang of this now. Um, it's not so bad now that uh, we're doing the uh, back to the back to the smaller dot display that it was a little easier to code. And uh, I think I could probably handle doing every game. And uh, one of the that was why it was really important to sort of have that generic ROM because uh, uh, if we were if we had two games up and running at once, it was a little hard to work on both. Uh, but it seemed that it seemed that in those days we we typically didn't have uh, we never had two Whitewoods that we never had two Whitewoods up and running anyway that uh, that needed dots. Hmm. Uh, and having those uh, having those generic display effects made it a little bit easier for the game programmers too. Um, that they did have uh, these display effects and timers that they could call, uh, that uh, that they could pass a bunch of text to, uh, uh, so that uh, 
basically it would you know show two lines of text and have a timer or stuff like that uh but it it took time for him to set it up and it was sort of a pain in the butt and uh you know it was their time was better spent writing real code than you know hacking in these uh hacking in these display things so uh you know i generally be able to step off of one game and you know do a little bit of support stuff for them now now doing this kind of starting out with this generic display rom though did that uh, one thing that I've always noticed about the Data East, the Sega, and even even current Stern games is that every game has, as far as display effects, a very similar look and feel. And I, I you know, I, I guess there's something to be said about familiarity. But on the other hand, if you if you compare it to Williams, um, you know, every one of their games is 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 very much different as far as the display effects, how things scroll, the fonts, uh, you know, how the, the startup sequence, you know, press start, you know, insert coin, but all that stuff in, in, uh, in the Data East world is very, very generic. Did you feel that that was a detriment or you just were, you know, you had to do it this way just because there wasn't enough staff? Well, there were, it's interesting that, uh, that there were, as far as the attract mode, and you know things like insert coin and stuff like that that we did want that to be standard from game to game to game now sometimes we would uh sometimes we would change it like uh uh you know there's that press start uh display effect where uh uh it it shows the the, the big finger flashing and the words press start and then a hand comes out and it compresses press start you know yeah i call that the big finger uh for uh for Jurassic Park, I seem to recall that we used a raptor claw instead of the hand. Right. So we would do, we, you know, we we would do stuff like that. But there was, uh, we did want to sort of have uh, a uniformity uh, across our games. That uh, you know, we we thought that that it was good that that stuff looked the same. Now, um, I will say that when I did games, I used a lot of different fonts. Uh, when I did Frankenstein, well, the first game I did was Guns N' Roses. Uh, and the second game I did was Frankenstein. I believe Frankenstein had 65 or 70 different fonts. Uh, which was, which was a lot. But, uh, you know, we did different things for different, different display effects. And I think it was a game that, uh, I think it was a game that came out looking a lot different from, uh, uh, Maverick, which, uh, uh, which Lyman programmed. And I think Baywatch looked a lot different from Frankenstein. Uh, and I think that uh, Batman Forever looked a lot different from Baywatch. Now, as far as fonts, how would you, you know, implement a new a new font? I mean, you know, it's not like I'm sure it isn't like you know, like you need a new font in Word. You download it off the internet and you know, put it in a folder and away you go. I'm sure it wasn't that easy, right? Yeah, but uh, well, it 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 was and it wasn't that uh, um, the uh, we sort of had two two different ways that fonts might appear. That uh, we would have fonts that artists would do, uh, that would be uh, sort of specific to a game. Um, you know, like they might have a Batman font or a, uh, you know a spooky spooky big Frankenstein letters font, or uh, uh, you know for a particular display effect they might have an animating score or something like that. And the way that we'd get the art is that uh, that they would give it, they, that they would, uh, uh, they would give us those art files. We had a tool for them where they could turn, um, 
uh, I believe that would turn, I believe they would save their, save their individual frames as, uh, I think it was TIFF files. I'm not, I'm not absolutely sure of that. Uh, and then it would get turned, uh, no, they saved it as, they saved it as bitmaps. And then we had something that would turn the bitmaps actually into ASCII, uh, that was, uh, that was appropriate for the, uh, uh, appropriate for the, uh, assembler. And then we'd have to label each little ASCII drawing. Uh, they would label each ASCII drawing, you know, A, B, C, D, one, two, three, four, five, whatever. Um, and then we'd have a big long, uh, table that would base, basically map, um, uh, if it was a score font, it would just be, uh, zero through, zero through nine and a comma, um, that would map that, uh, map that into an object that if we, uh, Gave it the appropriate offset. It would know what uh, it would know what character to draw. Basically, basically we had a string drawing routine, and if uh, you know you passed it one, two, three, four, five, uh, it would uh, be clever enough to figure out that uh, uh, and you passed it that in a and that uh, it was supposed to be drawn in a score font. It'd be clever enough to figure out that it should go and get the one and put that next to the two and then put in a comma. And then draw uh, three four five. Well, actually, it would be three four zero. But uh, and, and was this done all through like the? I imagine this was done through like a macro assembler or something. Yeah, there was. A, well, there was a um, um, Lonnie Ropp actually wrote the original uh, Data East uh, uh, one twenty eight by thirty two uh, uh, display system. And uh, without going into a whole lot of detail, I'm sure that the the pin main people know it all pretty much anyway by heart. But uh, um, but it was a it was a system that uh, uh, combined a lot of uh, a lot of assembly language code uh, with a lot of scripting, so that uh, you wouldn't necessarily have you would if you were going to draw a string, uh, you would not have to uh, you would not have to really reinvent the wheel. That the string would be out in some table uh, or some bank uh, of memory, and you tell it to draw this string in this font. Uh, in this color scheme, and uh, and it would just go do it. So initially, if you were just sort of programming display, uh, you might not have to know a lot of assembly language at all. Uh, and that was why you know that was why it was sort of the entry level programming job uh, for pinball. But there are also some people who you know tried to do it and uh, didn't have a really good eye for it, and uh, uh, you know. Really couldn't really couldn't do layout very well themselves, and uh, and the stuff that they did just uh, you know didn't didn't wasn't necessarily very visually appealing. Uh, certainly, I had a lot of learning to do. But the nice thing was the first game I worked on, uh, the first game I was sort of the lead uh, display programmer on was uh, working on Guns and Roses with Lonnie. And of course, Lonnie had written the system and knew everything that it did, and uh, you know could really give me pointers. But he could also give me pointers on what looked good and what didn't. Uh, there was of course, there was not there was not always agreement on what looked good, and what didn't, uh, in that group. Uh, that you know, uh, you know, some people would want you know as much reverse video and flashing and whatever that that would uh, you know that that would be exciting for the player and it would attract other people to the game and you know other people would say well you know you're flashing it so much that I can't even read my score. So. Uh, uh, but so we had that we had that system that was uh, that was done by Lonnie and then uh, uh, Lyman Sheets. Uh, while Lyman Sheets was originally supposed to be the dot programmer for Guns N' Roses, uh, but um, and 
that was certainly certainly a lot of work for him because he had uh he had done the dots for Tommy and he ended up do, also doing the dots in the most part for WWF. I did I think I did a couple I did like a week of work when he went off to Disney World. He went on vacation. Um uh, and I think I, you know, programmed uh programmed a couple things then. Uh but he was supposed to do guns too, but uh um he got uh he got moved over to uh writing the display system for the uh one ninety two by sixty four uh which was actually a sixty eight thousand system. Uh, I think that was I don't remember if that was something that he if he'd had sixty eight thousand experience before or not. Uh but uh he stepped in and uh wrote a very nice system uh for that dot matrix display that uh, actually had a lot of new features that uh uh we sort of ported back to the uh uh 128 by 32 standard size dot display uh at the time of Apollo 13. So how hard was it to program the 192 versus the 128? You know, you got this monster size big display with more levels of shading and 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 it, and it looked great. I mean, the Baywatch stuff looked looked really really good. How uh you know how tough was that compared to the you know to the you know the the medium sized displays it may be it it wasn't uh in some ways it was in some ways the layout and stuff was actually easier because uh, you had a lot more space in fact uh in fact we had to be careful not to have too much not to have too much instruction on there you could fit a lot of stuff um, uh, but uh the actual programming was uh was very similar uh you just had to be a little bit you had to be a little bit more careful uh because it was uh, uh, because it was 16-bit instead of 8-bit uh, in terms of the instructions, and uh, uh, that uh, that you had to be careful that there were ways that you could uh, there were ways in your scripts that you could uh, you could make the thing get really confused and uh, and messed up. But uh, uh, but Lyman did an excellent job uh, on that system. Uh, it was it was uh, uh, I, I wouldn't say it was any any harder to program there were just uh there were just a couple tricks that uh that you had to uh that you had to be aware of and uh through some of the through some of the things that we that he did um, we could actually fit in even more art and more digitized stuff uh than we ever could before uh, it was nice that we uh, uh that we had uh, uh we had two I think we ended up with two four megabit ROMs, uh, two twenty-seven CO forties for that, uh, for that display. So we uh, we certainly did have a lot of space. Yeah, you you doubled your ROM space basically, right? Yeah, exactly. And you know the the, the code instructions were bigger because they were six, you know were sixteen bit, but yeah, you could certainly pack a lot more art in there. Um, and it was uh, yeah, it was really a lot of fun to uh, it was really a lot of fun to work with it, but uh, you know it was just. Uh, it was just unfortunate that it didn't catch on, and uh, certainly the Williams guys uh, 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 took that display and did a lot of nice things, uh, a lot of nice things for it with slots. Uh, right, right, that's right. The Williams, the WMS slots, that's right. They use that larger 192 display. Yeah, like uh, like X Factor and uh, and uh, and and some of those other games from that generation were uh, I, where I thought I thought had uh, had. Uh, had great play value whether they whether they made money or not i don't know but uh, uh I, at least a couple years ago some of them were still going strong 
And what was the decision? Was it a financial decision to go back to the the smaller 128 display? Yeah, it 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 pretty much was. Um, of course, uh, we made that transition for Maverick, and um, somewhere in the middle of Maverick was when uh, uh, was when Sega fully took over. Uh, they'd already had a stake. Uh, they'd already had a stake in the company. In fact, they'd had a stake in the company for a long time, uh, and that was when they uh, and that was when they finally bought the rest of it and and moved in, and uh, uh, you know changes changes started to be made in terms of design uh, uh, because of um, because of their ownership and uh, you know sort of a different financial model and sort of the pinball market falling apart and the bottom line uh, that. Uh, you know, we brought in this more expensive thing, and uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, it didn't really it didn't really have a bump in sales. That we really weren't we really weren't selling more games. Now, of course, we didn't necessarily we didn't necessarily have the greatest titles during that time either. Um, you know, Maverick really didn't have the nostalgia, uh, and it was sort of brought in as a uh, as a game that. Uh, France France wanted the France wanted the card game with the drop targets. That was the that was the real big sort of push for why that theme would be such a wonderful thing. You know, we're going to have a, we're going to have a we're going to have a, a drop target game again. And uh, you know that the French took one look at it and they said, you know, it was like they it was like they wanted a Gottlieb game <laughs> from uh, from the 1970s. You know, where's our captain card? Uh, right. you know, and, and and that that wasn't what it was. Uh, that uh but you know Maverick uh, and then uh and then Baywatch uh you know we did we did Maverick because we thought the French would buy a whole bunch we did Baywatch because we thought the Germans would buy a whole bunch and uh they weren't uh, they weren't so hot on Hasselhoff then I, I guess they were hot and cold on him or maybe the maybe the Germans liked Hasselhoff and the people who played pinball didn't but uh, uh we didn't sell a whole lot of that um and Frankenstein uh you know, it had a it had a pretty good cast, and uh, uh, you know, didn't turn out to be the the enormous blockbuster movie uh, that we'd hoped it would be. And uh, uh, by the time we were by the time we were uh, a little bit deep into Batman Forever, we pretty much knew that the dots were going to be a lame duck. That uh, uh, the operators wanted to be able to uh, only stock one kind of display, and. Uh, uh, I don't think uh, I don't think the technical problems that we had with Baywatch helped us any. Um, that uh, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with that uh, uh, that mod. Yeah, the, you mean where the five volts fails going to the dot controller board, and then the whole display goes out, and then you guys had a special cabling modification that you could plug in that would help that. That's right. That it was. I think there was. Uh, I think there was an issue of not enough amps getting there, and I think there was also an issue of mechanical stability. Right, right. I just fixed a, a Maverick for a guy, and basically, you know, I didn't have that cable, but, you know, I did essentially the same thing. You double up the 5 volts, you double up the ground going to, you know, going to that controller. You use new, you know, three-sided trifurcon pins instead of the, the original single-sided pins, and bingo, you know, it's it's all good to go. Yeah, and it was funny. We were, we had that game at the trade show, and uh, this is a trade show out in Reno. We had uh, 
uh, Yasmin Bleeth, who I think is, uh, um, she uh, she came out for the show, and for one day we brought her in, and she was signing autographs and uh, and and you know doing all this stuff and uh, uh, you know really really digging the game, and uh, the game is crashing in the video mode, and it would crash like multiple times, and we just could not figure out why. Um, there was absolutely nothing wrong with the code other than the code was exercising the processor so much that it didn't have enough power and it would crash. That was the problem, too many cycles. So what did you do to fix that? That, that was the, the, the wiring. Oh, oh, really? oh, you mean the, the power consumption was the issue? Was the, you know, it would, that, the video mode was just about the only place that would make it crash. Huh, so because the power consumption was so much because it was drawing so much current or whatever. Yeah, it was pumping. It was pumping so many frames through and so much artwork that uh, that it was just uh, that it was just too much. That the processor was really being exercised and drawing a lot of power. But the but the processor could handle it. It just didn't. It just the current limits couldn't. Yeah, you know, or the you know, or the processor was pulling too many frames off the ROMs, and you know, it was too much. Uh, you know, too much power draw. Now, when you did Baywatch. Did you get to deal with any of the stars? I mean, you got any Hasselhoff stories? You got any Pam Anderson stories? Anything like that? You know, not not really. Um, the I think the most of the time, the people that we worked with uh, in on the games were were very cooperative. That uh, there were sort of there were sort of two issues that were there. Uh, when it actually came down to the movie stars, that it was uh, uh, it was the sound recording and the likeness. Uh, you know, would they would they do custom speech for us? And uh, and uh, uh, you know, what could we do as what could we do as far as the art was concerned? And uh, we brought uh, well, probably the first the first time I I found out that it maybe wasn't always such smooth sailing was when we were doing Guns and Roses. Uh, that uh, uh, John Borg and Joe uh, and Brian Schmidt went out to uh, California to do a recording session, and they're at the recording studio, and uh, they uh, uh, they had Slash there, and uh, was uh, you know recording guitar licks and his speech and stuff that he was saying. But of course, uh, of course, you know the the recognizable voice is uh, is not Slash. Uh, but uh, Axel, and uh, they were going to record Axel that same night. And uh, uh, he uh, apparently uh, got confused, and his limo went to the wrong recording studio. And you know he was late. Uh, this was in this was in uh, this was in '94, some of '94. So it wasn't you know it wasn't like everybody had a cell phone back then. Some people did, but you know they're having trouble figuring out where he was supposed to be and. Uh, he showed up two hours late and locked himself in the studio and was swearing in there for like 90 minutes on tape and then, you know, erased the tape and then, uh, uh, you know, he would, uh, uh, there was, there were some things in the script that he just wouldn't say. Uh, he would say jackpot, but he wouldn't say extra ball and, uh, you know, all this stuff that was. Why wouldn't he say extra ball? His personality. Well, why wouldn't he say extra ball? Don't know. I mean, it was just uh, it was just Axel. He didn't want to say it, so he wasn't going to say it. And uh, there was absolutely no way that uh, that he could be convinced to uh, change his mind. 
So that's uh, that's why there's uh, uh, that's why there's no extra ball uh, speech in the game. Uh, that uh, uh, he wouldn't say mystery. That's why Slash's voice is the one that says mystery for that uh, uh, for that shot. Even though Axel is the one who's on the piece of plastic that always breaks. That's up above that hole. Huh. Now, did you get? Were there you know any of the other members of the band that you got speech from? I don't think we did. Um, that they had uh, they had gone through uh, they'd gone through some transitions then and. Uh, you know the other band members just weren't quite so recognizable that they each sort of had a feature in the game. Um, you know there was the Gilby uh, the Gilby motorcycle feature. I guess he got into a bad motorcycle accident. That's why that's why that got put in. Um, but uh, but you know generally generally it was just uh, it was just those two. I'm, I'm not, and I'm not sure if they got actually got uh, individual sound samples from. Uh, uh, they got individual sound samples from uh, from everybody in the band, or just uh, or exactly what was done. But I know that they got uh, they certainly got a lot of stuff from Slash, and uh, uh, I don't know if they if they actually went back to master tapes and uh, uh, were able to get you know Axel's singing Axel's vocal track, uh, you know, for some of those songs or not. But uh, Brian Schmidt did a great job of putting that together. That ended up being uh, ended up being a really nice game in terms of sound package. Do you know what you know? I know Slash was into the the whole the whole Guns and Roses pen, um, and and you know he was kind of the spearhead of, of the of the product. I heard, but I mean, do you know what kind of compensation that that was given to these guys? I mean, what did Axel end up getting, or you know, what did Slash or did Slash just do it because he just wanted to do it? Do you have any stories behind that? I'm not sure. You know, Slash was uh, Slash was big into pinball. In fact. Uh, uh, in fact, that haunted house game that I had uh, that I had in Maryland uh, when I moved back to Chicago, uh, I didn't think I was going to have space for a pinball game for a while. I wasn't sure, so uh, I actually gave uh, gave the non-working one to a friend of mine in hopes that he could he could eventually get it working. And the other haunted house got sold to Slash that he'd always wanted one. Right. Um, so you know he he was into pinball and he just sort of want he just. You know, sort of saw it as a promotional thing, right? That it'd be a positive thing for the band, um, and you know, they got. I'm, I'm sure that they got some amount, uh, and uh, you know that they got they got some games, and you know they could take a game with them on tour or something like that, and that would be cool. So I don't, I don't think it was. I don't think it was by any means a big money deal that they actually came to us. It wasn't the other way around, right? Uh, I think they also went to Williams, and uh, they, they like didn't know who they were or something, and uh, you know said no. Sorry, we're not interested. So they came over to us, and uh, of course, uh, 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 Joe knew who they were uh, right away, and uh, uh, you know, sort of got the got the motivation. And uh, uh, it was uh, it was a license that uh, John Borg was very excited about, uh, very excited about uh, uh, doing a playfield for and working with those guys. Now, Apollo thirteen. How was? Um you know, to me that was really a cool game. You know, first white star system. You know, you you kind of up the ante and in, in in the way of board system. Um, was there any? Um, and, and of course, this went back to the smaller display. You know, the medium size, 128 um, pixel wide display. Uh, you know, any stories behind that or any of the personalities? I you know, I know we've maybe we should talk about the Tom Hanks story and and what you guys did with the with the back class. Yeah, um, it was funny. I had a 
I think Apollo was probably one of the games that I had uh, that I had a larger role in. Uh, that uh, uh, I was involved in that project very early on, and that was probably the game where we sort of uh, brought to bear a lot of the new a lot of the new technology in a lot of different ways. Um, we took a we had a prototype uh, a prototype Apollo 13. Uh, that we took down to downtown Chicago to Oprah's studio uh, when um, um, Tom Hanks and uh, uh, Tom Hanks and uh, Tom Hanks and Gary Sinise and um, I believe Bill Paxton um, were on Oprah, and we brought them the game. Um, so that uh, so that they could see it, uh, that uh, I believe that that Joe Joe and Neil actually were on that Oprah show, uh, and this uh, this probably would have been in uh, in April or May of ninety I think ninety five. Uh, I think was it ninety five when that movie came yeah, out? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that um, uh, that they were down there and. Uh, and then Lonnie and I stood in this sort of back studio, actually shooting baskets because they actually had a basketball court in there, uh, with the game just sitting there all by itself and waiting for him to come in. And uh, it was uh, it was a very interesting a very interesting version of Apollo 13. It had the big dot matrix display, uh, which there was which there was actually some, uh, a score font and some digitized artwork for, because at that point we didn't know. Uh, we didn't know that the dot matrix display was going to go. Um, it had um, cabinet art on the side that uh, was sort of this side view of uh, Cape Canaveral and sort of this light blue, uh, sort of sky blue color to it. It didn't have that. It, it didn't have that black uh, that black cabinet at all. And it also had a play field that was also sort of in that light blue color too. Um, and did not have the four-color process art. It had cut screens, hmm. uh, and uh, and it also had um, two spinning discs uh, in the place where the moon and the Earth were. So, uh, and it also had outlane gates too that would uh, that would open up. So, when you had the 13-ball multi-ball, uh, you would have uh, spinning discs on the play field. The outlanes would be closed so that the balls would go back into the inlane, uh, so that you couldn't possibly drain. Uh, and those were those were features that we uh, that we eventually took off of the game. Well, you know, those every one of those features sounds great. Where <laughs> where is this prototype of Apollo 13 so I can get my hands on it? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, um, the outlane gates. Uh, I don't think the code ever even got written for them. I don't think they were functional at the time of that uh, at the time of that test. Um, the first hundred games that were made, the first hundred play fields, had those discs cut out uh, for the moon and the Earth, and we actually had some uh, some four color process um, uh, some four color process uh, decals that went on those spinners. Uh, that those were there. Um, and uh, we decided that we weren't going to have it, that it was too expensive, and that we couldn't get good-looking artwork uh, that would be rough enough to actually move the ball. 
And the other problem was that those disks were so big that uh, uh, we saw with whitewoods and stuff like that that uh, we'd either have to make them be out of really thick metal and they would be really loud like a washing machine uh, or uh, I, or they would be sort of flimsy enough that uh, it would be uh, it would be hard for our factory to get them spotted just right so that it wouldn't mess with the ball every time it went over it because they took took such a big part of the play field. Uh, and we were also afraid of warped play fields at that point because it was going to be a game that was going to hit the line in uh, September and October, and uh, we generally had problems with uh, play fields that came in at that time of year. I don't know if it was the conditions in the factory or that it was uh, uh, play fields that the actual plywood got manufactured in the summer when it was uh, uh, when it was more humid, and then they were getting put into games when it was less humid. Uh, we had all we had had all sorts of problems with that, and uh, the more inserts you put in a play field or the more holes you cut out of it, uh, the more likely it was going to be warped in a particular area. And uh, we didn't really want to. We didn't really want to ship out warped games. In fact, uh, uh, I remember with Tommy, and I think with Goldeneye maybe too, we actually had some play fields that we had to take off the wood wood side rails and put in metal rails um, for. Uh, uh, to uh, try and reduce that warping, that it would actually sort of fix the, it would act, that plus the bottom arch would sort of fix the play field. Interesting. Um, but uh, it was it, it was sort of a bang for the buck thing. But the the first hundred games, uh, those play fields came in, and uh, uh, we actually sent them back. Uh, they they weren't screened. Uh, they weren't all screened play fields, but we actually sent them back to. Uh, uh, sent them back to the uh, folks that were making the play fields. I don't remember who it was. And they actually plugged up those holes. They cut wood wood circles to plug in those holes and glued them and sanded them again. But if you And you couldn't tell from the top, but if you actually looked at the bottom of the play field, you could tell that those two uh, uh, maybe, you know, 5-inch uh, and 3-inch uh, diameter holes had actually been plugged. Huh. Interesting. So, so whatever did happen to that prototype? Uh, well, the play field, the, that one play field was, uh, uh, you know, was there was only one that was screened that way. And uh, I think Kurt Anderson, uh, who was the artist, had it at some point because he had done the he had done the artwork, so we felt like he should have it. But it all got stripped out, and uh, um, I don't I don't, uh, I don't remember what happened to uh, I don't remember what happened to those uh, I don't remember what happened to those uh, that spinning disc assembly. Uh, it may have been that no, well, no, we wouldn't have used we wouldn't have used a version of it on Twister because it was only one because uh, it was only one uh, one spinning disc, and of course it was modified to have the magnet in the middle. And so the um, the large dot matrix code that was written for Apollo 13 was that functional enough that I could put a large dot matrix in my Apollo 13 if I had this code? No, it didn't have any of the features at all. It had the score and maybe one jackpot, and that was all. It was uh, it was just enough to sort of give uh, um, to give uh, uh, and let's see it wasn't actually uh, I'm trying to think of who was there um, it wasn't actually Bill Paxton because he was off uh, he was off making he was off making uh, making the Twister movie at that time uh, so it was actually Kevin Bacon and Gary Sinise who were who were on Oprah along with Tom Hanks and and what was their reaction to the game. Oh gosh, they thought it was the coolest thing ever, and they were just like, "Yeah, you know, I can't wait until this done. This is done. Uh, 
you know, I'm going to love to be on a pinball game. Uh, I can't wait to uh, I can't wait to have one of these for my kids. And what about even Hanks was saying this? Hanks didn't come. Oh. Hanks, uh, you know, this, you know, out of the studio, and Hanks had said that he didn't want to be part of licensing for Apollo 13. So, uh, uh, so uh, uh, it was basically, you know, uh, Hanks goes, you know, the thing is over, and Hanks goes left, and uh, uh, Kevin Bacon and Gary Sinise go right and come in by us, and uh, um, it was. Uh, so we did the recording session right there in sort of this big open studio, and it was actually okay. Um, we actually had we actually had two things going for us on Apollo 13. Um, the uh, the first thing was is that we were going to be for much of it uh, making the voices sound like the astronaut voices sound like they were at the cockpit or mission control, uh, which basically sort of that radioizing uh, or was basically compressing those sound samples. So we could fit much, much, much more speech in there uh, because it was sort of a low bit rate. didn't mm. take up as much space. You know, sort of like your, you know, it's sort of like uh, uh, your MP3s. You know, people sure. want to rip it, you know, 192 or, or uh, you know, uh, whatever, 128. This was more like 16 or maybe like 12 right. uh, that uh, we were able to fill those in. And uh, and the other thing was that uh, that was the first game that we ever actually used uh, masked ROMs. That we had uh, we had enough lead time uh, in between the I guess the October production and uh, uh, I guess we were doing this recording session in maybe May. And uh, you know we had this prototype. We had a lot of the rules figured out, and and I spent a lot of time writing the speech scripts. Uh, I actually wrote the speech scripts for that game. Uh, myself, that uh, uh, we decided that we were going to sort of take advantage of that. You know, here we are. We're Sega. We're Sega now, so we're going to save a little money, and we're going to send. We're going to finalize these ROMs way early on. At least the, at least the, at least three of the three of the four speech ROMs, and we're going to send those out to uh, Japan or Taiwan or Korea, or uh, wherever they would do it, and. Uh, Instead of using EPROMs, we're going to have them mass produce a bunch of special ROMs for this game, uh, you know, that we're not going to change or whatever, and we're going to save a couple. We're going to save a couple dollars a game doing it that way. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way because uh, uh, because we uh, we didn't make as many Apollo 13s as we needed to, so we had a bunch of these left over that we ended up throwing away. Uh, right. But as it was, we broke even. Huh. Um, so now, you know, the the big stories was back to Hanks and not wanting to be part of the licensing, like the, the, the big space helmet, the dark space helmet on the back glass, you know, is kind of implied that it's Hanks. Of course, you can't see it because it's got the dark the dark cover on it. Because So he didn't want any part. He didn't want to do voice. He didn't want any visual. He didn't want any part of this. Uh, that was that was pretty much what it was, and we were actually... Uh... We're actually quite shocked by two things that happened towards the end of the project. Uh, the first thing was is that Hanks bought a bunch of the games. He went to uh, um, whoever it was, uh, whoever it was out in L.A., C.A. Robinson or whatever, and supposedly bought six games. And uh, then the other thing was that uh, he said he wasn't going to do any licensing, but then his image was uh, um, along with some sort of uh, some sort of Lego promotion with Apollo 13 and. Uh, you know, some kind of contest to uh, to build the best space Lego setup or whatever. So we're kind of shocked that he did that. But uh, 
uh, we um, there were all kinds of rules uh, involving him in terms of promotional stuff that uh, um, when his image did appear it had to it had to appear with at least one of the other astronauts it could never be by itself um, you know all kinds of crazy rules and uh, we did have a we did have a version of that back glass where basically here's this here's this flap and if you lift it up hey there's Tom Hanks underneath that was uh, that was the the artwork as shot was like that and we actually did have a second we actually had three back glasses um, there was one that uh, looked just like the movie poster just in a photographic back glass it just had Apollo 13 at the top said Houston we have a problem and here's the and here's the spacecraft with the uh, with the steam coming out of the side of it other than that, it was other than those other than the the words and uh, the title and that thing it was completely black um, I thought it was I thought it was pretty stunning but uh, um, it was stunning it was stunning because it was different but it wasn't necessarily attractive um, there was a second back glass um, that had uh, the rocket uh, had the rocket in the middle and a bunch of rainbow colors and uh, and then sort of some uh, some artwork uh, you know with some little vignettes on either side um, that was that was sort of a nice one too I think that was painted but I don't think it was ever shot and then of course we had the uh, we had that third one and uh, uh, I think I thought that the uh, I thought that that back glass ended up being pretty nice, at least from my perspective, because when uh, when we went to uh, Jim Lovell's house, the actual astronaut, and uh, gave him a game, that uh, that was a perfect place for him to uh, for him to autograph uh, autograph the back glass right over the face where Tom Hanks wasn't. <laughs> now, did Bacon and um, and 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 um, the other guy did they did those guys get games by default you know it, it sounds like Hanks didn't get one but then he went out and bought them yeah generally the generally the studio if it's a movie the movie studio gets a certain number of games and they get some money uh, certainly it's not it's not the kind of money they would get if they uh, it's not the kind of money they would get if they uh, you know sold 500,000 action figures you know we're talking about uh, you know, some number of thousands of pinball machines, and you know, even if it was a run like Adam's Family, you know, to to a movie studio, uh, you know, that's that's not a whole lot of money. Uh, that basically, when we did these games and did these licenses, that it was sort of the ego trip for the, you know, the director, or the producer, whatever, that they were going to get to have their property on a pinball machine. It was a status symbol. You know, they would have it in their office. You know, uh, you walk into uh, Dick Donner's office at Warner Brothers, and he's got his Maverick, he's got his Crypt, he's got his original Superman, he's got his lethal weapon. Uh, you know, that you know, here's 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 living billboards of uh, here's living billboards of my work. Right. You know, you walked into uh, Arnon Milchan's office, and he's got his own special customized game joel silver had his game he had it in the waiting room of his uh, he had it in the waiting room of his uh, of his office at warner um, you know it was just it, it was just a, a big thing to them it was just like okay yeah you know this my my license is one of the eight biggest licenses of the year you know 
people want to license my thing. It was a real pain in the butt for the consumer licensing division of, uh, of you know, Warner or Sony or, uh, you know, whoever, because uh, it, it wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to be all that much in terms of income. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't really a consumer product, uh, and it was a whole lot more difficult to approve uh, how their license was being depicted than a T-shirt, right? You know, or a snow globe. Right. Uh, that there's, you know, uh, and it and it's a little bit harder to understand than than a video game, because a video game, you know, you can. You can send a video of the people playing the game, you know, the pinball machine, you know, it's a little bit, there's all these different elements, you know. I guess the video game, yeah, you've got the box and you've got the little book that comes with it, the instructions. But, you know, the pinball machine, you've got the backlash, you've got the play field, and you're talking on the phone to somebody who doesn't even know what a play field is. <laughs> and, you know, trying to, uh, trying to put all this, uh, all this together. Um, at some point we even stopped working with Warner Brothers just because it was too hard to get stuff approved. That they would want to go back and change stuff, uh, you know, after the fact that, uh, uh, you know, Maverick got, Maverick, some, uh, some code got changed midstream because we, uh, uh, because we used stuff, uh, that, uh, was maybe not approved. Uh, uh, one time actually when I was, actually was down here, um, in North Carolina after I'd left the company, I got a phone call from somebody at, uh, um, somebody at Universal asking if so and so's voice was used in Apollo 13. You know, and this is like you know, eight years later. Um, you know, was so and so's voice used in Apollo 13? They found out that they were in the game, and now they're demanding compensation under their union contract. Huh. Like, and and what <laughs> was her voice in the game? I don't think it was. That um, it was actually funny for that game that. Uh, um, that uh, there was one quote from Hanks that we really wanted to use, which was, uh, gentlemen, it's been a privilege flying with you. And uh, I actually did this. I actually did the recording for that as a sound-alike. Uh, <laughs> and the, I guess the, that was the only game that I ever did any sound for. The other thing was, the other one was me screaming blast off uh, for the uh, for starting the 13-ball multi-ball. Hmm. And... Uh, I think it's been told before, but the 13 ball multiball is a story in and of itself. That it was, uh, it was actually something that uh, that I came up with over dinner when we were at that Baywatch show. Um, that uh, originally Guns N' Roses they talked about having a 12 ball multiball, uh, a riot ball. Uh, that uh, the uh, that shooter lane, um, the original shooter lane, not the not the corrective shooter lane. There was the Original shooter lane that was sort of the black powder coat. Uh, they would take the ball to the top lanes, and then there was the low-level corrective shooter lane for when the balls all got stuck in the right. Uh, all got stuck there, and the uh, shooter coil would burn itself out. Wait, 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 wait! Before you tell that story, I always wondered this: Why didn't you guys just put a switch at the top of that shooter lane, and instead of you know, okay, so. You know the the ball is at the, the you know at the bottom of the shooter lane. That switch is closed. Shoot the ball. 
if that switch doesn't make up a top, don't put another ball in the shooter lane because, you know, it wouldn't make it up and then another ball would get in there and then there'd be two in the shooter lane and those would never make it up and then there'd be three in the shooter lane and that would never make it up and then the whole game is jammed up and it's a service call. Yeah, the problem was is that uh, at some places in Europe or when they, once the game had a lot of play, there were games that couldn't get one ball out. Yeah, but uh, I would think having that switch... It couldn't even get the first ball out at all, especially when there was low line voltage, so we had to change it. Right, right. But, I mean, what, didn't you guys see this coming? No, we never had a problem with it. Hmm. Uh, but but uh, that thing was originally designed uh, so that there was an additional six-ball trough up above the top lanes. So you could hold six balls up there, and then you'd have six more in the trough, so you could have 12 at once. And that was why it sort of had that sort of sort of rise up and then sort of that flat part that was going to be a stage. And when you locked a ball, uh, when you locked a ball, and you know, it, may not, it may have been that there were just going to be six balls, I'm not sure, but when you locked a ball, uh, what it was going to do was it was going to kick, kick a ball up onto that stage and have pictures of all the band members up there, and it would light up. So that it was like, you know, trying to get the band on stage. And of course the last, last one would be Axel because he was always late. Um, but, uh, uh, so that was why it sort of, that was why it sort of had that shape. And after that thing went away, um, we just sort of left it. But, uh, uh, we're sitting down at dinner and we're talking about Apollo 13 a little. And I said, you know, you know, Joe, since it's 13, since it's Apollo 13, we should really have 13 ball multi-ball. And we sort of laughed about it. But then, uh, then we came back and we designed it, and uh, and that that ended up being a whole lot of fun. Yeah, no, I think that's that whole game. I think is 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 just. I mean, it's it's a lot of it's novelty play, but it's really cool and it's really well done. You know, my my only criticism is that membrane switch in that trough that's in the upper left hand corner that loads the additional eight balls. Um, you know, that membrane switch gets just beat to hell and and you know i don't even know if they're still available yeah i'm not sure if they i'm not sure if they are or not um i actually had a stack of them at some point um because the first the first uh the first set of membrane switches that they came out with uh were wrong that they uh that the uh the switch order in them was something like uh one was like uh one, two, three, five, four, six, seven, eight, or something like that. So, uh, uh, so when it was filling up, it would get confused or something like that, or it didn't, you know, the in-between switches weren't right, uh, you know, and, um, it would really probably only be an issue if there were like three or four balls missing to start with. Uh, but, uh, I, I make, I think I kept a bunch of those just in case I ever got a game that I actually had one. I had a sample game and it didn't work very well, so I sold it to somebody. I actually sold it to the uh, to the same fellow who uh, uh, the same fellow who has uh, who also has my Guns and Roses. I sold those two games at some point, um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think Apollo 13 lived up to uh, in in some ways lived up to what it should have been mechanically. That there were a lot of games where you would shoot it up into the rocket and it wouldn't stick. Uh, of course, if the moon broke, that was just sort of eye candy. But uh, you know, for me, trying to get trying to get multi ball and keep on shooting that damn thing and uh, and having it not stick in there, that was uh, that was pretty lame. That was pretty much the reason that I got rid of my game. Is that whatever I bent or fooled with or whatever, 
I just couldn't make it work right. Yeah, I've got one, and it's, you know, every once in a while it kind of gets confused with loading the balls in that back trough. And, um, you know, it's, yeah, you're right, mechanically it's probably not quite up to snuff. But, you know, it is a cool game, and that 13-ball multi-ball, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's nothing like it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a real eye opener, and I think that I think that in that, in that sort of era of games, we uh, we did we did pretty good we did pretty good visually uh, in terms of in terms of making in, making making things that interacted with the ball or doing sort of different uh, doing sort of different uh, different kind of toys. You know, it was sort of really it was different from Guns and Roses, which was you know a very sort of straightforward in your face pinball. You know, it had a couple. You know, it had the it had the side plunger and uh, uh, you know it had the magnets, but uh, it was uh, you know it the ball would never ball would never disappear and reappear anywhere on Guns N' Roses. It was really very sort of it was really very straightforward, and uh, you know Apollo sort of was uh, Apollo sort of brought the uh, uh, sort of brought the unexpected, uh, and uh, you know people. A lot of people saw it and they didn't believe that there were 13 balls. They saw the sign on the top and, you know, that can't possibly be true. And then they would play it and they would actually get it. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and I thought it was pretty cool. Now, what about GoldenEye? How was, uh, how was working on that product? Did you get to meet any of the personalities, you know, in the movie or anything? Well, GoldenEye was interesting. Um, GoldenEye was most interesting is that was because that was the first game where the hammer really fell. Uh, from the Japanese management at Sega that said, uh, you have to make your games for less money or you will not be making games at all. Uh, we will shut you down. So, uh, GoldenEye was, uh, designed by Ward Pemberton, uh, who, uh, who had been, uh, uh, had been at, uh, had been at Bally. Uh, I believe he, uh, if I'm right, I believe he designed Fathom. But he, he'd been at Bally and he actually took over, uh, Took over and uh, uh, designed Gilligan's Island uh, uh, when uh, when the designer who was working on that project was uh, was killed, um, died in a, in, a, in an accident. Uh, Ward took over that, and uh, he was also a fireman. Uh, he was a, a Chicago fireman. He still is, uh, and uh, was also doing pinball at the same time, which was sort of interesting. So when he had to go on duty, we wouldn't see him for a little while. But uh, there were a lot of features on GoldenEye that uh, uh, that got taken out. There was this uh, skill shop thing where there was this big apparatus up at the top that had a window that was opening and closing this building, and you had to time the shot so that it would uh, so that it would go all the way up into the building and go through the window and uh, not miss. And there was uh, you know some more complicated ramps and one-way gates and and all this stuff and. Uh, uh, a lot of it got taken out. Uh, it really, it really sort of hurt Ward's feelings, and uh, uh, he didn't didn't stick around after the project. Um, Goldeneye was interesting because uh, uh, it was sort of my, I wouldn't say first uh, experience with sort of this high-powered licensing, but. Uh, uh, you know, I'd started to go on licensing trips with Joe and 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 talk to some of these uh, folks that were pitching a license, or uh, you know, some of these movie directors, and uh, um, they were really busy getting 
uh, getting White Star and everything ready for a show. So I actually got to make a solo licensing trip that they sent me over to London uh, to uh, watch a rough cut of GoldenEye and uh, uh, watch a rough cut of GoldenEye and to uh, uh, you know give them a give them a scene list and uh, uh, negotiate about what uh, about what sound clips we could get and what video what video stuff we could get. Uh, and that was a really fun trip that uh, uh, they took me down to this uh, uh, special theater that they would only use for screenings. Uh, it was, uh, uh, I don't remember exactly what the arrangement was, but the uh, production company for Bond is uh, uh, right down uh, across from Green Park. Right, uh, It's two doors down from the original Hard Rock Cafe. And they uh, they took uh, uh, took me up to this uh, uh Hopped on a, we hopped on the, uh, hopped on the tube and went, uh, I don't know, about five or six stations away to this uh, special screening theater that they had for, uh, uh, I believe, uh, MGM and I think MGM and Universal have a partnership where they co-distribute all their stuff to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, Britain, Britain, the rest of Europe, and the, and Africa and the Near East or something like that. And uh, so anyway, there's this sort of plush, you know, 20-seat uh, movie theater. And of course, this is this is before you know, sort of the fancy days of you know, of uh, you know, home theaters that are built like that. And uh, uh, and so I'm there, and uh, it was a licensing screening. So there's like uh, these executives from BMW, executives from Rolex, you know, executives from. Uh, you know, Tanqueray Gin or whoever else had the, and all these people had the product placement. So they were here watching this rough cut of the movie that, uh, uh, you know, had had basically all the movie, but it didn't really have very many sound effects and stuff like that. Uh, you know, they're watching it, and you know, they got their stopwatches out, seeing how many, uh, seeing how many seconds the Rolex is on screen and stuff like that. And here I am, you know, pinball guy, you know, frantically taking notes on. Uh, you know exactly what made it into the movie from the script and what didn't of what uh, of what we think would be really cool, um, and uh, you know trying to keep track of uh, you know stuff. Uh, okay, you know we've got this on the back glass, but it's not actually in the movie. Maybe we need to take it out, stuff like that. But uh, the Bond people were really great to work with, and uh, of course Pierce wasn't there. Uh, Pierce actually lives out in California, and uh, it was funny. Joe and um, Joe Camico and Brian Schmidt actually flew out there uh, to his house and uh, did a sound recording there, but he had a cold, and that's why uh, a lot of the stuff in that game does not sound like Pierce, uh, because he had a cold. Hmm. So even uh, even James Bond gets a cold. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a little break of talking with Oren Day, uh, programmer at Data East, Sega, and Stern. We'll be right back after this message. Deep in the forests of eastern Canada, you will find something, well, groundbreaking. And something that's very, very pinball, but something that's really, really small. Presenting classic Playfield reproductions. Two guys in their basements. We've got the passion, we've got the gear, and we've got the quality doing our very best to remake classic and more modern pinball replacement parts. Classic Playfield Reproductions. Playfields. Back glasses. Plastic sets. 
on the web at classicplayfields.com. This portion of TopCast is brought to you by Pin Game Journal, covering the world of pinball. Visit them online at www.pingamejournal.com. All right, we're back with Orrin Day, uh, programmer for Data East, Sega, and Stern. The first game that we did uh, that was really uh, that was really sort of the the lesser or the as we as we tried to put a good spin on it, doing less with more game was actually Twister. And uh, um, Goldeneye, uh, like I um, started out with John Carpenter doing the dots, and I sort of and I sort of finished it up. Uh, after he left, uh, so but it, but it you know it was almost like I was going to be I wasn't going to be in an explicit programming role in that game and then and then uh, and then sort of sort of ended up getting thrown back into it. Uh, but uh, uh, so I I maybe did a little bit of the a little bit of the ideas for the rules, but uh, uh, Twister and Apollo 13 I really did a lot, and uh, those were both games uh, uh, like Guns and. Uh, uh, quite a few others where I was working with Lonnie Ropp, and uh, uh, Lonnie and I uh, sort of really clicked in terms of uh, in terms of uh, doing a lot of the rules together and uh, and figuring stuff out and you know trying new stuff and uh, uh, that was that that was I think we were a good team. Well, you know, in Apollo 13, was there uh, a lot of switch compensation, you know, code that you had to write? You know, to to have to deal with these thirteen balls, or was it not that big of a deal? Well, we couldn't use, of course, we couldn't use switch compensation as Williams did uh, because they had a patent. Well, what do you mean? What was the patent on, and and what why that you couldn't uh, you couldn't do switch fill in? Uh, you know, like uh, like if the like if uh, Williams determined that uh, uh, the ramp exit switch was bad. Uh, you know, after their 50 games or whatever, and it hadn't been hit, then uh, they had a patent that they would uh, uh, that they would maybe go ahead and uh, if you hit the target that was next to the ramp, it would give you credit for it. Hmm. And uh, I think it was something that I came up with that I said, well, you know, we can we can we can do we can do some compensation. But we can do it, and we can do it in a way that um, that doesn't violate their patent. That uh, we have a ramp entrance switch, and we have a ramp exit switch, and uh, we also have an inlane switch if the ramp comes back to uh, if the ramp feeds the ball back to the flipper, uh, and you know it goes goes in that inlane rollover. Mm-hmm. Why don't we put in our code that if you hit the ramp entrance switch, and then you hit the inlane, and uh, and those two switches are consecutive, that it always gives you credit for a ramp. Right. And then that way, if the if the switch that's up on the ramp uh, doesn't work, then you still get credit for it. Of course, it takes a little bit longer, and if there's, you know, a lock or, a, you know, a device or a diverter or something up there, uh, then, uh, you know, then, th- then that's not going to work. But... Uh, uh, that would be one way that you could do it, um, but you know that was sort of the that was sort of the level of our the level of our fill in that we you know sort of had to be a little bit clever that uh, you know if you had a whole bunch of targets and you had to finish all the targets for something really important then you better give you better spot a target somewhere else, but uh, 
you know, otherwise, otherwise, if one of those targets breaks, like for example, if you're trying to spell Frankenstein, and you've got uh, all those targets, and one of them doesn't work, then uh, you know you're really going to be in trouble if you've got an important feature there, uh, and nobody can ever get it. Uh, they're not going to like your game. But if uh, if one of the targets is busted, and uh, you know you can uh, you give credit for a target from somewhere else, uh, you know like uh, you know even if it's you know making a combo or making a ramp shot or something like that, just even do it silently, uh, then uh, it might be that your game is broken and nobody's going to notice. So that thing where like on WPC games when you turn them on and they give you this test report of you know switches that you know haven't been hit in so many games or so many instances that was patented and you guys could not do that well that wasn't that wasn't necessarily patented cuz we did it too but it's just that we couldn't change the way that our we couldn't change the way that other switches behaved based on the brokenness of uh, based on the brokenness of, of of a particular switch how could they ever prove that how would they ever know without seeing your source code just anecdotally in the game, and they would actually bring to court something like that. Uh, well, they, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Did you ever have to deal with any lawsuits brought in by Williams on Data East Sega? Uh, I did not, but the big, the big lawsuit over the word multiball um, was uh, just sort of was wrapped up, um, was wrapped up before I started, uh, and they, you know, everybody was. Everybody was sort of afraid of that happening again, uh, and you know we were very sensitive to the we were very sensitive to the patents that we had a big book of, a pr- of printouts of all the you know of all the Williams patents and all the Gottlieb patents and uh, and all this. Uh, like for example, when uh, uh, when we did uh, uh, when we did Golden Q, um, Williams still had the inline drop target patent that they'd gotten from Bally is good for 17 years. So we could not use we could not use inline drop targets with a single reset. That if we wanted to have inline drops, we would have to have um, we would have to have uh, each one would have to be a separate resettable target. Hmm. Now let's uh, let's talk about Twister. Um, what, what what was your involvement in that game? Uh, pretty much, uh, pretty much a lot of the, a lot of the rule stuff, uh, a lot of the rule stuff right from the get-go, uh, and, uh, that was another game where I wrote all the speech, uh, and, uh, there's actually sort of a funny story about that, that, uh, we actually had some silly speech that we'd hoped to use for a home ROM, and, uh, uh, it, that actually, uh, uh, that actually Helen Hunt didn't want to say. And uh, uh, the, actually, uh, Jan de Bond, who was the uh, director of Twister, actually was was kind enough to uh, uh, to direct our recording session that we were doing it over the phone. And he was actually in the studio, and we, you know, he he sort of had he had a real good idea of what we wanted, so he was actually directing it uh, along with uh, along with Brian Schmidt. And she's like, I don't want to say that. I wouldn't say that. My character would never even say that. <laughs> So, but anyway, you know, we're obviously uh, obviously inspired by uh, you know some of the home roms that the Williams guys have done. Now, how come I've never seen a Diddy Sega home rom home rom for any of these games? There really aren't any. Oh, there really are none. Yeah, um, you know, Brian Schmidt was 
was was you know sort of against the idea, and he was also really busy. Uh, and we also sort of you know recognized that uh, you know we had we had, we we had enough to do, and uh, you know we really sort of needed to uh, we really sort of needed to uh, put all of our energy into uh, uh, put all of our, all of our energy into doing the production games, especially when I was doing when I myself was doing four games a year. Um, you know, and did that for uh, did that for three years, and also did novelties and uh, did stuff like the Mini Viper. Uh, you know, I was uh, I I had no uh, if I was going to go home and do anything that was pinball, I should play pinball. I shouldn't be programming more of it. Well, let's talk about Mini Viper. What was the deal with Mini Viper and your involvement with that versus the regular full size Viper? Uh, well. Um, we had talked about ways to we're always interested in ways t- that we could change the pinball market uh we wanted to do things to make uh to make our games look new because face it you know you look at a game you look at a game today and other than the theme uh, there's really nothing substantially different uh from an adams family to uh, whatever's rolling off the line now. There's, you know, maybe there, maybe there's internal differences that we know about that it's a better hardware system and, you know, and so forth. But there's been really nothing to really change, change the game so that if you took somebody who'd never seen a pinball machine and, you know, you put these two side by side, I mean, obviously if you put them next to a Paragon, they're going to say, oh, yeah, that's old. And this is new because this has a screen, and this other one, you know, this this has this has a this has a monitor on it or a screen, and the other one doesn't. Um, but uh, you know, there was nothing there was nothing new. So we were trying to make things that were new and different. We tried the big dot matrix display, it didn't work. Um, we tried uh, having sort of that uh, that Sega showcase back box, uh, like was on Space Jam and uh, uh, and on. Uh, uh, Starship Troopers and uh, and on uh, uh, trilogy Star Wars trilogy, you know, didn't make didn't didn't make a whole lot of difference. And one of the things that we thought was that uh, uh, you know with with uh, uh, you know places like Seven Eleven not having room for a pinball machine anymore, and bars saying, well, you know, the pinball machine takes up too much space, blah blah blah. Um, let's go back and try and make a game. That has uh, sort of the same cabinet dimensions as a uh, uh, as like a uh, uh, 50s Gottlieb wood rail, or you know a, a, a 70s uh, wedgehead game like Volley. Uh, you know, let, let's go, let's make something that's a little smaller, that's very easy for that's lighter. Uh, I don't think we really achieved that, but that's that's supposed to be lighter. So that uh, so that it's really easy for one person to break down and move all by themselves, you know, they don't have to be a big hulking guy, and uh, you know, let's uh, let let's see if we can uh, let's see if we can make this happen. You know, we took, uh, uh, of course, there was, uh, I know that that game has been uh, has been pretty well documented by Mark, uh, but it has uh, you know it has one single sheet of glass uh, in the back instead of. Uh, Instead of having the glass and the display in a separate mount, uh, you know stuff like that that uh, might just make it be a little lighter. Um, you know, sort of. I, I think it was sort of the 
the same idea as when Capcom did Breakshot. That here's something that's a little bit here's something that's a little bit simpler. Yeah, but but didn't this come out at the same time as as uh, William's Safecracker? I mean, th- are you saying that th- this was designed independent of Safecracker? You guys didn't see Safecracker. You didn't know about Safecracker. I don't think it was related to Safecracker. Um, we've been talking. The the other thing that was interesting that we talked about is that uh, in uh, in 1995 or 96 um, we talked about and. It may have been even earlier. It may have been towards the end of towards the end of ninety four, ninety five. I think it was around the time Baywatch was on the line, um, talking about trying to make games in a generic cabinet, uh, and uh, and sell playfields and games as kits, uh, very much like the Pinball Two Thousand model. Uh, you know, make something where you could. Uh, where you could easily uh, you'd have an attractive generic pinball cabinet, or you could change the side art, sort of go with that video game model. So you could just drop something in, uh, so you could drop something in and have a new game. And uh, we sort of figured out that we couldn't make the margin on it, so we sort of dropped that idea. There wasn't any, there wasn't enough money to be made compared to making dedicated pinball machines, even if we, even if we sold more. And uh, you know, maybe maybe Gary uh, maybe Gary didn't recognize it. Uh, at first, or maybe it wasn't as big, but we also knew that that would sort of uh, uh, that that would sort of drop the value of a pinball machine because it would take away the co- it would it would hurt the collector market um, because you wouldn't have you know these dedicated games that an operator could uh, you know turn around and uh, turn around and sell to a home to a home person and have that be have that be a big part of his return on the investment. Now on the Mini Viper. Um... Did that ever get really get finished? And how did Bakula end up with that? I would have figured that one of the guys, you know, at at at, at you know your company would have kept that. Well, it was. Um, I don't remember exactly how that worked out. Um, that uh, I did all the programming on that game, um, and uh, um, had something in my contract that I was supposed to get one of each game that I that I programmed. Now. Of course, I don't know if it was. If I don't think it ever said each production game or anything like that, but I think we worked. I think we worked something out. But I didn't particularly want it, um, and you know, it came. I think it. Uh, you know, it went. It went to the trade show. It came back. It sat. Um, I don't remember if we took that out to uh, one of Herb Silver's shows out in uh, out in Las Vegas or not. If it made that trip and back. Um, one time too, but of course you know it was. It did end up missing a bunch of parts, and you know stuff broke and stuff like that. And and Mark sort of put it back together. But uh, I viewed that game as having the code being finished. Um, that uh, you know it might have it might have gotten a couple more features in there, but it was just supposed to be. It was just supposed to be a simple game for the street that they would that, you know that would they would drop into a bar. Um, that was. Uh, that was basically sort of the idea of it, and I actually programmed it very quickly. Uh, I worked from the twi- I worked from the uh, Twister code, and I did the uh, I did the game software and the display software probably in about three weeks. Now, why didn't you have any involvement with the uh, you know with the regular the full size Viper? Oh yeah, I did. I, oh, oh, you did. I, okay. I, yeah, I, I did dots on that too, and did uh, did some of the rules and some of the speech scripts. And uh, uh, 
I actually actually had quite a bit of involvement on the sort of interim Viper, the one that had the car on the spinning platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was actually a game that uh, uh, I'm sure you've seen the flyers for that game. That uh, there were there were actually three versions. There was there was the Mini Viper. There was a game that was Sega Dodge Viper, and then the production game was Viper Night Driving. The interim game, um, which had sort of different artwork and didn't have any of the uh, Mankow Muller stuff, um, and it was more sort of a straight ahead, a straight ahead Dodge Viper game. Um, I think we made like ten of them or something like that. We made a bunch of flyers, and uh, we were trying to sell them to uh, Viper owners. Uh, at the big Viper convention, there's an annual Viper uh, uh, meet, and I think I think that year it was in Florida. Uh, the reason that we were interested in Viper uh, to start with is that Joe Camico had one, and then eventually he had another one. Uh, he had one of the original uh, one of the original red Vipers, and then I then he got one of the uh, got one of the uh, uh, blue with white stripe GTs. Um, so, uh, so that was sort of his source of interest, and of course, Mark was, you know, Mark was in the in the in the auto industry, and you know, with the, with his uh, with his job and everything else, and uh, you know, I, I don't remember if he actually bought the game from Gary or exactly how that how that end of it worked out, but I don't think anybody begrudged it to him. So, it seemed like a lot of those sort of prototype games sort of went uh, went out in a weird way, and I don't remember what I don't remember exactly what they did. What they did to compensate me for that, I think I might have gotten, uh, I might have gotten a Star Wars trilogy Whitewood or something like that. Um, now, what about Independence Day? What was your thoughts about that game? That was uh, that was a fun game. Um, I think by then that was uh, that was well, Twister was Twister was three games into the four-color play field process. Independence Day was the fourth, and I think we were really sort of starting to, uh, we were really sort of starting to get that figured out and uh, and make it look better by that point. And uh, Independence Day was a lot of fun. Um, I thought we had some, I thought we had some real solid rules on that, and I liked doing display, and it was, um, it was probably um the first one of our licenses in a long time that was a really successful movie. Uh, you know, Golden Golden Eye was, but I'm not sure that it, I'm not sure that Bond at that point was necessarily hitting our demographic. I'm not sure that Apollo 13 did, but I think that uh, and I'm not sure that Twister did either. But Independence Day was pretty much a box office success all over the world, and uh, and and really hit sort of that uh, sort of that early 20s. Uh, Kind of person, and it was a, and it was one that we were able to come with uh, uh, pretty much in a timely manner when the movie was released. Uh, that you know that was that was a game that we had in the summer. Uh, that was uh, uh, that was the uh, first game that Rob Hurtado did, and uh, of course he was uh, he was at Williams for uh, for quite a while and uh, worked with people like Steve Ritchie, and uh, he. Uh, I thought he did a really super mechanical design job on that game. I mean, the, you know, the one knock is that the alien heads, uh, the alien heads sometimes get brittle and break. Uh, but, uh, but man, those ramps, those ramp shots were good. Those loop shots were good. It was a real smooth playing game. And when you shot them, it did interesting stuff. 
Now, what about Space Jam? Did you have any interface with with Jordan on the, on doing that, or you know, with Warner Brothers or whatever? It was funny that, uh, um, of course, Warner was Warner was the difficult uh, Warner was the sort of difficult company to work with. Uh, whereas I'd categorize maybe uh, Sony and Universal based on people that were there at the time as uh, as being a little bit easier to work with, um, and certainly you know that the Looney Tunes are sort of their their flagship property, so they were very protective of that. Uh, but having Morgan Weisling out there uh, doing the art and having him be such a just such a super artist, um, he did a great job on that package, and. Uh, um, we had some issues with the sound, with uh, getting the Looney Tune characters recorded. That uh, uh, you know, versus using our sound alike, using Fred or uh, using their sound alikes uh, or whatever. I think there was some sort of controversy with that. But uh, uh, Jordan was really cool about it, and of course there was the there was sort of that uh, uh, sort of that pre-existing uh, uh, that pre-existing relationship uh, uh, because of the. Uh, the custom Jordan pinball machine, so uh, so that actually went uh, went pretty well, and uh, actually was one of the people who got to take the uh, uh, take the pinball machine over to his house, which was cool. He wasn't there, uh, but got to meet his wife, and you know she gave us the big tour and uh, and everything, and we got it all set up for them. So uh, it was uh, it was a pretty fun project. Of course, Lonnie and I uh, uh, Lonnie and I both really like basketball. And uh, uh, Joe Camico certainly like like basketball too. So it was uh, you know when the Bulls were uh, uh, I think that was the season that the Bulls won 72 games. So it was uh, it was a really fun time. Uh, I put a bunch of uh, a bunch of basketball trivia questions in uh, in that game that was kind of fun. You know stuff about when Jordan was at Carolina. There were a couple little digs in there, of course, since uh, since I went to Duke and he went to Carolina. But uh, you know there were a little uh, little subtle questions. Uh, uh, and uh, and it was uh, it was a fun game. Yeah. Now, did you um, center hole? I wish that center scoop wouldn't wear out so quickly. But uh, we tried some new decals on that game too. Um, that uh, I think that was the first game that we sort of used those the four color process uh, uh, four color process bumpy decals like the ones that were on the back of the backboard. Um, the skill there were two backboards: the skill shot backboard and then the. Uh, and then the regular basket that you could shoot, and uh, I didn't think that those ended up being quite so great. Uh, but uh, it was a uh, it was an attractive game. I think we had some trouble. We had a little bit of trouble with uh, we had a little bit of trouble with uh, them getting the registration right on the cabinet so it looked like a basketball and just not sort of messed up. Uh, getting the orange and the black all lined up. Uh, actually, there's an interesting story behind that game too that. Uh, um, we actually made one uh, one regular screen back box for that game uh, because we didn't know if we were going to be able to get the Sega Showcase cabinets in or not. And we had, uh, uh, there were wood Sega Showcase cabinets, metal Sega Showcase cabinets, all kinds of different, uh, all kinds of different incarnations. The metal ones, uh, I, I know we made some metal ones on there um, that were, uh, they were really, really heavy. Uh, it made it. It made the game uh, absolutely weigh a ton, um, but uh, but that was that was fun. And we did uh, that was the first game I think that we did 3D back glasses for too. That we uh, had some sort of thing where we could make the back glass out of a with a, a lenticular lens. So 
so that it would you know appear to be uh, appear to be 3D. And I think we made maybe 100 or 150 of those. So that were that was actually kind of fun. Uh, but I actually do have uh, somewhere. I think it's up in my attic. I actually do have that one screened wood back box. Uh, so if I ever got a Space Jam, I would probably put that on there. Now, so um, you didn't weren't involved with the recording for the sound with uh, with Jordan or anything. I was wondering how that went. Um, I don't even remember if we did anything special with Jordan in there. I think the Looney Tunes did most of the stuff. I think the Jordan stuff was all from the movie. Now, how was uh, Star Wars Trilogy and working with that license? Um, you know, I... It, I recall that one being pretty easy. Um, that uh, we had that spot on um, that spot on back glass, which was just so perfect uh, that there was no there was no back and forth with that at all. And uh, uh, you know the playfield got approved quickly, and uh, you know they were real cool that they weren't uh, they weren't uh, looking at every single little detail on the dots or the rules or stuff like that. You know. Typically, I would make a. Um, I would do a lot a, a decent during a project. I would do a decent amount of video recording of the dot matrix display. Uh, that uh, um, because we didn't have Brian Schmidt in house, uh, what I would do was I would make a videotape of all the dot matrix display effects that needed to have like some kind of big sound go with it, like a jackpot or something like that. Uh, that needed its own special sound effect. That I would go ahead and uh, uh, I would go ahead and uh, uh, and make a videotape of everything that I'd done to a certain point, and then we'd get a messenger and send the videotape up to him in Evanston, and then he would do the sounds. And then uh, I think we would actually uh, uh, we'd actually. Uh, uh, Get them via modem or or something like that. It was before email was it was before email attachments were the thing uh, that we would uh, you know he had he'd have an FTP server set up on his computer or something and we and we dial them up and uh, and uh, and download the new sound code. But I remember making a lot of you know sort of three two one go uh, uh, videotapes for him, and uh, we would generally at the end of a project uh, or when we were getting ready to go to production. Uh, do videotapes of uh, most of the display effects, or at least the art, as it looked like on the dot matrix display, and send it out to send it out to Hollywood or whoever, and they would pretty much uh, they would pretty much. Uh, I think some of them would actually look at it. Probably others would just sort of stick it in their desk drawer and say, "Yeah, it's fine," because huh. you know a lot of them didn't even know what they were looking at. Right. You know, there was one person that there was one person that you know I'd always put a nice cover letter in there as one person that said, "Why are all the people orange?" I'm like, well, you know, uh, that's what color our display is. Oh, okay. Well, we just wanted to we just wanted to check. <laughs> now, what about the the um, the Lost World Jurassic Park? How was that game? Um, that was a good one to work on. Um, that uh, um, we were we were working with Universal on that one, and uh, and and they were generally very cooperative. Um, that one, uh, that one, like Independence Day, was all, was uh, uh, was was good in that we were sort of able to reuse some of the uh, uh, some of the toys that were made for the movie for that. Uh, 
um, the the first Jurassic Park had uh, those little those little plastic dinosaurs, and those came from like a scientific or like classroom supply place, uh, and then everything else was custom made. But like uh, the little the little light up dinosaur that was inside of the egg, I think that was a I think that was a licensed Jurassic product. And I think we had a couple other licensed uh, little sort of uh, action figures or dinosaurs and stuff like that that we put on the game. Um, you know that was that was, that probably wasn't that probably wasn't our strongest game. Um, that uh, but we did I think we did we did do a good job of incorporating some of the interesting elements that were in the first Jurassic uh, into uh, into the game that we had. Uh, we had the smart missile. We had some of the uh, some of the previous uh, some of the previous features uh, uh, like that. Some of the uh, uh, some of the the old display effects I went and got back out of Jurassic, or some of the art that uh, you know people who had played the first Jurassic and were sort of really paying attention would uh, would probably notice. Um, we also had a hidden video mode in. Uh, we had a hidden video mode in there. Um, that was a copy of the Space Jam video mode that actually had uh, uh, four ver- Velociraptors and a T-Rex shooting uh, shooting free throws. That we actually had the basketball video mode hidden in there. How hard is it to get that mode? Um, you know, I don't. Even, <laughs> I'm embarrassed, but uh, I don't even remember how you get it. Um, I think you start the regular video mode, and maybe you hold down a flipper button or something like that, and it comes up. Might have to uh, might have to research that, but uh, that was uh, that was sort of a funny little Easter egg. Did you do very many Easter egg or hidden modes or you know anything you know like you know in your games? Not a whole lot. Um, there was a really funny one that we had uh, that we had set up in Baywatch, and uh, uh, because we didn't do uh, we did it at the very end, and because we didn't do another code release, it never actually got put into production. Um, of course, the the infamous Baywatch thing is the uh, uh, is the uh, uh, is the drowned Kevin Martin during multi-ball restart. That uh, there's uh, for the five jackpots. There's actually five swimmers that are uh, that are swimming there, and you know you you save each one when you make a jackpot. But if you get in multi-ball restart and you press the start button, then uh, uh, then Kevin uh, actually goes down in under the water, and a little piece of text pops up that says "You drowned, Kevin," and then uh, the, a dolphin comes back up where he was. Um, that's probably the most notable one, but uh, but yeah, we did have the uh, we did have the uh, Velociraptors and T Rex shooting baskets. I think we also had uh, I think we also had uh, uh, in trilogy we also had uh, Darth Vader and four stormtroopers shooting baskets too. It was sort of an inside joke that we would have that that we have that video mode in all of the games, uh, but you know eventually we stopped doing it because it took up too much space. But it was just sort of a funny thing that was uh, just sort of a funny thing that was in there that we knew about. Now, how about X Files? How was working with that? And did you get to work with any of the personalities in that one? No, you know X Files was was an interesting license that um, we actually got the X Files license and. Uh, the show kept on getting more and more popular, and for some reason that was the project that kept on getting put off and pushed back. And uh, uh, by the time, by the time that uh, and you know Fox was also sort of growing as a network then, and uh, uh, 
by the time we actually got around to doing that game, I think there was actually some uh, resistance um, that uh, that we become too science fictiony too, uh, because we you know had done uh, had done Independence Day and uh, trilogy and uh, and Space Jam, which really wasn't about space but had space in the name. Uh, that we were, you know, that, that that our licenses were too similar, which is one reason why Viper got stuck in there. Um, that um, um, there became so many layers of uh, licensing people and management people and Fox people and whatever um, that uh, we ended up with somebody who knew absolutely nothing about pinball, who wanted to tell us every single way that we could use every single sound quote and. Uh, and every single display, and you know, you can't just take sound bites and use them out of context. You can only use them in the same context that they were used in the episode. And uh, we really end up uh, um, making a bad game. Hmm. Uh, that was, we were not at all pleased about how that uh, how that ended up turning out. Uh, they didn't really want to do any custom speech at all. Uh, so we've got lots of sort of weird, you know, there's no extra ball or anything, you know. Well, why would why would Agent Mulder ever say extra ball? And you know what we wanted to say to this woman is because he's in a damn pinball machine. He's in perfect context for a pinball machine, but they you know they were very holier than that with their license. So it really ended up being a project that uh, there was there were several times that uh, if if we had been if we had been a bigger company and we weren't you know sort of the uh, uh, the game equivalent of living paycheck to paycheck <laughs> that uh, you know each game is going to have to be you know successful or or you know we'll go out of business or well you know we couldn't just cancel a game that that would have been you know as much money as we'd spent on it to that point it would have been you know financial suicide but uh there were points during that game where uh, uh we had meetings uh where you know we were saying you know they're just making they're just making this impossible. I wish we could just walk away and and never have made this game. And I think that uh, I think you know that uh, that really shows in the uh, I think it I think it really shows in the game that uh, that I don't think that game really had a lot of spirit. And then uh, and then we had the mechanical problem where uh, uh, where that uh, where the where the magnet would actually wear the wear wear through to the wood very very quickly. <laughs> And we had to put that uh, we had to put that steel plate up over it. And uh, Lonnie had written code where uh, uh, it would do all sorts of ball throwing tricks. And there was uh, there was a feature where it would catch a ball, and then you would uh, uh, you would you would shoot up to the ball that was that was caught with another ball. And it was it was really easy to uh, hit that ball and knock it into the file cabinet and replace it with the first ball. Uh, you know, sort of like those, uh, sort of like those uh, uh, swinging ball things that right, uh, you know, right, sort of a yeah. desk toy. You know, that sort of same inertia effect that you know. Here, here's one ball. Oh, you hit it with another ball, and guess what? Now this uh, second ball stuck on the magnet, and the first ball goes somewhere else. It was really cool, and uh, you know, we messed with it and messed with it, and and uh, and then when uh, uh, and then when we had to put that steel plate on there, it all went away. Now, what about the Starship Troopers? How did that, how did that game go? Oh, that was uh, that was the most fun game to work on of all, I think. Uh, that uh, 
you know, sort of working with Joe Balser and, and Joe Camico on uh, on getting that third flipper in there. I'd always wanted to have a third flipper at the bottom and do something do something interesting and have some kind of design that was like haunted house or you know or paragon or some of the old uh, some of the old uh, the old wide body games that had uh, that had multiple flippers down there uh, and uh, and that was the arrangement that uh, we came up with with that one little flipper that had the separate button so if you didn't want to use it you didn't have to but if you did use it you would get some kind of a bonus uh, and uh, the licensing people on that project were absolutely delightful to work with that uh, uh, we worked with uh, uh, one of the producers John Davidson who actually had uh, uh, before Starship Troopers produced Ghost so he'd had a you know big hit and uh, he really wanted to do science fiction and uh, he actually I believe produced and directed some of the uh, or had big involvement in some of the subsequent Starship Troopers projects that there was a direct to uh, there was a direct-to-video movie that they did, uh, Starship Troopers 2, uh, and uh, some of the uh, animated Starship Troopers stuff. He was just really, he was just really into that license. And uh, we went out there and we saw just these amazing, for the time, wonderful CGI, uh, CGI display effects, and uh, or CGI not display effects, but movie stuff. You know, where you know where they've got you know uh, this scene where it's uh, you know like the uh, like the Ten Commandments, where there's all the people running into the frame, except instead of you know ten thousand people, it's ten thousand gigantic bugs. We're like, wow, this is really cool. This is uh, you know this is really going to hit our demographic. And uh, you know they were really cooperative. They gave us everything we needed. They gave us speech. They gave us. Uh, uh, we had uh, 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 Paul Verhoeven uh, coming in and directing the uh, uh, the speech thing, much like Jan Devant did for Twister. Uh, and uh, you know all the all the people that were in the movie uh, doing you know all kinds of speech for us, and uh, you know it, it, it maybe could have sounded a little bit better, but uh, uh, I think uh, I think we made a pretty good game there, and uh, uh, the rules changed a little. Uh, it's not really the the rules there aren't uh, the uh, original way that it was envisioned but uh uh i think all in all it was uh it was a it was a pretty good project um i don't think i i don't think the half targets in that game are quite so good those hard plastic half targets right uh, in fact uh in fact uh, starship troopers is a game that i have and uh, uh i've actually uh, got regular uh regular old targets that uh that I'm ready to uh, put into that game and get rid of those hard plastic targets because they just don't feel good and don't score well. Yeah, I, I, I never liked those either. Now, what about um, uh, Lost in Space? How, how was that one? Well, Lost in Space was an interesting project for me. Um, during that, during the time of uh, during the time of Lost in Space, um, it was becoming obvious that there are going to have to be more. Uh, more cuts at uh, at Sega if the place was uh, if the place was going to survive. So uh, it was interesting. I was under contract then uh, and had like probably another year or so on my contract. Uh, but uh, at that point, I uh, started dating uh, Karen, who's now my wife. Uh, 
who lived down here in North Carolina, and I was coming down and coming down and seeing her. And of course, I had uh, had Duke basketball tickets, so uh, uh, I needed to get down here in uh, uh, November, December, January, February, March, uh, quite a bit anyway. Uh, but uh, at some point during Lost in Space, um, they decided that they were going to need to uh, have a headcount reduction, and but they sort of had a way around it that it wasn't so much that they would that it was absolute money that they just needed to get people off of the books. So they said, well, Joe said to me, well, you know, you know, Warren, we know you want to go go live down in North Carolina. Um, why don't why don't we just give you a new contract as a contractor, and uh, you can just do games from there, and you know, come back, you know. A couple times a month and whatever, you know, fly back, stay with your parents. It won't cost us all that much money. And, you know, I thought about it for a while, and I said, yeah, I think I'm going to go ahead and try this. I'm going to move down here. So uh, Lost in Space was the first game where I actually did some programming from down here. Um, it was it was a certain amount of time into the project, uh, so I was just sort of adding on display stuff, but... Uh, uh, you know, back then, uh, by that point, uh, by that point, it was uh, it was uh, uh, a little bit easier to uh, to email stuff or get stuff over the internet or something like that. So uh, uh, we were sort of emailing stuff back and forth, and uh, you know, I would write uh, write display effects down here and then uh, uh, make EEPROM images and send them up along with uh, along with the uh, descriptive stuff, and artists would send me email. And uh, that actually worked very well. Um, of course, Lost in Space, the movie, was an absolute dog. We walked out of that movie and we said, oh, my God, I can't believe that we did this. And it's like we've got to try and make this game as much like the classic TV series as possible. And uh, they actually had, uh, actually, uh, for the for the trade show, actually had the uh, uh, the actor who played Dr. Smith on the original, uh, uh, on the original uh, TV show was actually in our booth at the trade show. Uh, and uh you know it i don't think it was i don't think it was that bad of a game but i think it was some a theme that uh a theme that nobody was really interested in yeah and it didn't sell very well speaking of which a lot of these themes you know sega or and data east and stern they were really big on licensed like everything was licensed what was your feeling about this you know opposed to williams where williams did some licenses but they also came out with, you know, their own original um, themes, as it may be. What was your feeling on that? Well, um, Joe was, uh, Joe it was, and of course is, very close friends with Larry DeMar. And uh, I think, I think, you know, we were, Data East was big on the licensing, uh, maybe before Williams was. But, uh, but, uh, I remember Larry making a comment about, uh, you know, the difference the difference in sales between Funhouse and Adams, and uh, uh, how big of a part that the license was to that, and uh, you know about how, you know, he really thought that license games were the way to go, and you know that was something that Joe was already convinced of, um, that the the thing that we maybe didn't see. And it's something that Stern definitely sees now, is that the best license to get is something that people know, and not something that's going to be an overnight flash in the pan. 
that you know now if if they're doing movies at Stern, it's going to be the third movie of a trilogy, or you know around around that, uh, you know like Spider Man, like Lord of the Rings, uh, you know that it's not going to be something that it's not going to be uh, something that's so much of a one and done. Um, I think we, you know, when we did something like X Files, I think there was even though it wasn't such a great pinball game. I think there was some resonance among the fans, and that was sort of a popular thing. Um, but uh, you know, it wasn't like you know you do this thing and it's and it's gone. But uh, we felt like licenses got a foot in the door. That it was something that would get a first coin. It was something that would that the operator would immediately know what it is, uh, and that that was uh, that that was a way that. Uh, that was a way that we could sell games, and it was also a way that uh, we would have material that we could start off with, uh, and uh, be able to work on that uh, because we didn't we didn't have people who were going to spend nine months or twelve months or fifteen months uh, coming up with a game concept and taking it from start to finish. You know, we we just weren't staffed that way. You know, we didn't have we didn't have eight or ten design teams. You know, there was there was uh, there was rarely anybody on the bench at our place. So, you know, that was one way that uh, uh, you know that we could that we could break even if we made a small number of games. You know, that we didn't have a threshold of you know so many thousand games like Williams did. Where they had to make at least this many games to break even, our number was a lot lower because we were a lot leaner. Now, Golden Q, they only made ten of those. Um, what you know? What was the deal with that game, and and why did the you know the theme kind of get shifted over? Well, um, that was that was an interesting time uh, when um, when the company was sort of in transition. Uh, now. I wasn't maybe there to see all of it, but I was, you know, sort of still part of it. That I'm down here in North Carolina, and uh, you know, I do the do the dots on Lost in Space, do the dots on Godzilla, uh, you know, do some novelty games from down here, uh, and then uh, and then do the dots on do the dots on South Park, and uh, uh, then Joe Camico says, you know, says I'm leaving. <laughs> Uh, and, and he takes off. And Golden Q was sort of, you know, we, um, it was it was sort of an experiment. And, you know, it was the eight ball deluxe play field. Uh, they, uh, you know, tried that, uh, you know, always trying new things, trying that countdown, uh, countdown scoring system and that tournament scoring system. You know, trying to make trying to make pinball a little bit different and have it make more money. You know that uh, uh, bowling is a game where if you're really good, it's more it it doesn't last as long than if you're really bad. Pinball is a game that if you're really good, um, your games last longer and you win more free games. So, uh, you know that was sort of a way that uh, you know introduced a timed element and if you're really good, you could finish it more quickly uh, and uh, you could have a sense of satisfaction. But uh, the game during prime time would still would suddenly be ready to take another quarter. Uh, you know that you wouldn't be tying you wouldn't be tying it up from uh, seven to ten p.m. on uh, you know on a couple of bucks. Uh, 
that was how you know that was that was certainly something operators were sensitive to that if you get the one really good player in there then the game's not going to make any money you play but won't make any money right uh, you know, looking for a balance so but that didn't work out that concept didn't work yeah I, I don't think it did that you know it came to expo and you know i don't think uh i wasn't there for that i wasn't there for that whole expo uh I think that that was in, uh, I think that was November of 98, uh, that that was there. Um, and, you know, so it, so it basically got, uh, it gave, basically got, uh, re- rethemed into, uh, into Sharky's shootout. I mean, with, you know, with some mechanical changes and obviously some significant rule changes, uh, when, uh, when those guys came on board. But, uh, uh, but yeah, it was, you know, it was it was something we tried and it didn't work. You know, we we tried a lot of things. We uh, uh, we tried making that uh, that irons and woods uh, uh, pinball game that was based on golf. That if you did really well, it would it would uh, dispense a golf ball. Uh, you know, that didn't work. But, you know, it was just just trying new things. Hmm. Now the next one it looks like you worked on was Godzilla. Um... That was uh, that was. Uh, that was a uh, completely from down here game, uh, or just about completely from down here. I actually moved down here full time on uh, uh, on uh, I think July first of I think July first of uh, of ninety eight was when I took the is, is when I actually started my apartment down here. I think I took a I took a twenty foot brought a twenty foot truck. Uh, 20-foot truck of all my games down here. I think around Memorial Day of that year. That was a, that was an interesting drive, uh, with uh, I don't know how many pinball machines and video games and Genko uh, uh, shuffle pool and all kinds of stuff. And maybe there was a little bit of furniture in the truck too. But <laughs> it was it was mostly games. I think I got a trailer the next time down for the for the furniture, but. Uh, um, but yeah, Godzilla was uh, another was a movie that was a big disappointment. Um, that it turned out to be not such a good license. That uh, the guys that were so easy to work with for Independence Day became terrible to work with for Godzilla. That they said we don't want anybody to know what Godzilla is going to look like, so we're going to give five different pictures to five different licensors so they can make their toys and stuff. And then all this to- you know, all the toys ended up looking not a lot like what Godzilla looked like in the movie. So they kept their secret, but they basically ruined their license. At least, at least that's my take on it. So, uh, um, you know, it, it it wasn't it wasn't a bad shooting game, but uh, you know, I don't think uh, you know I, don't, I, I think the the license wasn't there, and I think the uh, the rules were uh, the rules were maybe a little bit hokey. I think it suffered from sort of the from some of the same stuff that uh, uh, that Jurassic did. That there were some concepts in there that just didn't work, that just sort of carried forward, uh, you know. And it was, I think that was a game that also kind of suffered from, uh, you know, trying to be, uh, trying to be like Williams and stacking up modes and collecting them all at once and stuff like that. And you know, keep on keep on shooting all this stuff, but don't shoot this one collect hole and stuff like that. And you know, I don't, I, I think that rule was kind of shoehorned into that game, and uh, I don't think it fit very well. Now the next one you worked on was, of course, a really big hit for the company, uh, South Park, um, and this was uh, like extreme bragging rights 
for uh, for Sega because this came out kind of the same time that Pinball 2000 came out, but you guys really felt that you did better in a lot of ways than Pinball 2000 did. What was your feeling on that game? Well, it was really funny that uh, we'd wanted to do a South Park game for a long, long time. And um, it was funny that, uh, uh, you know, Joe Camico was very close to uh, Bob Gale, who wrote the uh, Back to the Future movies, uh, collaborated on that uh, Tattoo Assassin's video game. And Bob actually sent us, um, he, had, he had actually received one of the original copies of uh, Matt and Trey's uh, Spirit of Christmas video. Uh, you know, that that was sort of the, I guess, the second thing that they ever did that was South Park, that, that predated, the, predated the TV series, that, uh, you know, some Hollywood guy had, uh, had, uh, had them do this, uh, do this video, and he sent it to everybody as like a like a Christmas card, and it just sort of was one of these viral things that, uh, uh, you know, of course there was no internet video back then, but you know people were copying, making copies of copies of VHS, and uh, uh, you know we got that and we watched it and we just thought that was so funny, and then uh, uh, you know five or six months later the series comes on uh, comes on Comedy Central and it pretty much became the thing that. Uh, Somebody would tape it uh, the night that it was on. I think it was on Thursday nights, maybe. Uh, originally, that somebody would somebody would tape it and bring Joe would tape it, or somebody would tape it and bring it in. And the next morning, uh, or at lunchtime, or something like that, we'd we'd all get together and watch it in Joe's office uh, on on Friday morning or something like that. So, uh, you know, it became sort of a thing at the office, and that uh, uh, you know we wanted to uh, we wanted to do the game, and uh, you know Gary was. You know, sort of against it. He didn't. He didn't think that it would fit. Uh, you know that there was sort of the stigma of doing a cartoon license that went all the way back to Bugs Bunny and you know Space Jam. You know, had cartoons on it and wasn't you know the wasn't the greatest. You know, it, it it did it did it did better than some of the other games, but you know, it wasn't like a real blockbuster. And uh, uh, we finally. Finally, there was enough momentum from that license to be able to go ahead and do it, and uh, uh, I think we uh, I think we made a game that was very accessible to uh, uh, to novice players, which is sort of the niche that we filled. Uh, you know that we wanted we didn't want a game that was going to be so hard or so confusing that uh, uh, that somebody in a bar who comes up and puts a puts fifty cents into it. Uh, you know, we didn't want that person to uh, uh, to walk away shaking their head after three balls and saying, you know, what did I just do? Uh, you know, for my fifty cents. Uh, I think we uh, I think we pretty much nailed it. We had uh, we had good sound samples. That was funny that uh, they said they wanted the game to be more family oriented, so we had to take out some of the bad words. Uh, and then, of course, they came out with that. Then, of course. Uh, you know, not too much later, they come out with the movie, which was, you know, just ridiculous in terms of uh, in terms of what it did. But uh, anyway, yeah, I think that was I think it may have been more of their licensing people than them actually saying what we could do. Yeah. Now the uh, Marvin at Marvin's Marvelous Mechanical Museum got one of those uh, got an early South Park, and it had a real early display. I, you know, I want to say the code was like. 0.25 or something like that and it had 
you know, like the the carpet scene in it, and it had some stuff that ultimately added that had had came out. What was the story behind that? When, when the carpet scene turned turned into the kid race, right? <laughs> took the tongues out. Right, right. <laughs> you know, yeah, yep. That was uh, that was the uh, pre licensor approved uh, approved stuff, and they said that they didn't want it in there, so. Well, Marvin ran that. I remember he got a tube of ROMs in the mail. Please take your originals out and put these in. And Marvin couldn't throw those out fast enough. That you know the ones that came in the mail, he kept the originals. Oh yeah, yeah. That uh, you know we've had. Uh, I can think of only. I can think of only one one time when we've really had to do a a ROM release because of uh, uh, because of the license. Because of the licensing, people not being happy, and that was actually during Maverick that there was uh, uh, that there was a sound and somebody on the display that uh, uh, that they'd approved, and then they later found out they didn't have permission that we didn't have permission to use or whatever. So uh, we had to uh, we had to re-record the sound and uh, change the display and uh, uh, and release a new ROM and send it to all of our customers. But I'm sure that there's plenty of the old ones still out there today. So was there anything else? In st- we couldn't take the guy off the play field. That was tough luck. They'd approve that. So right. they had to pay him any money. They they did it themselves. Now, was there anything in South Park, uh, you know, anything buried, Any you know, anything interesting that, you know, is kind of hidden? I don't think there was, uh, I don't think there was, uh, there was really anything in there. There was... Uh, there was some sort of silly attract mode display effect that was in there for me because that was actually that was actually supposed to be my last game or it, or it turned into my last game that once Joe left uh, they said well you know it, your your thing is up at the end of February and and uh, and uh, we're going to let you go that uh, you know, I started out with like a, with like a eight month contract or something like that and you know they said that they wanted to they said that they wanted to get somebody local. Uh, you know, if they wanted to get somebody who was just out of tech school or whatever and teach them how to do display, uh, that they needed to, you know, further cost cut. Of course, that was before South Park was so successful. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think South Park was, uh, you know, it, it, it gained, it gained momentum that there were all those, you know, sort of subsequent runs. And, uh, you know, and that, at that time, Gary was sort of in the position, Gary was, uh, uh, you know, getting ready to buy the company. Uh, or I don't know if he had at that point or not, but uh, uh, you know Joe was wanting me to come out and work in slots, and I was down here in North Carolina, and actually discovered that it would be to my benefit as far as buying a house and everything else to have a regular job. That um, uh, I was sort of a self-employed contractor, and since I'd only been doing it for uh, uh, for a short amount of time, they didn't want to count. Uh, they didn't want to count any of the income towards uh, qualifying for a mortgage or stuff like that, and uh, uh, you know, found out that in the middle of January, or whatever, that I wasn't going to have a job as as of March first, and it's uh, getting married at the end of April, and you know, we needed to needed to buy a house, and I had uh, you know, uh, fifteen or twenty pinball machines that were all farmed out to friends or in their storage areas or. Uh, uh, whatever I didn't have, uh, I didn't actually have a single game. I didn't have a single game set up at my uh, at my condo at that point. Uh, I think I had one game there, um, 
uh, a challenger that I bought from Herb Silver that was actually sitting up on its end in the corner of the in the corner of the place. But it had any game set up at all. Uh, so uh, you know, we needed to needed to get a place to put all those games. Now, when you were developing code remotely, um, you know, how would you do that? How would you test the code and, and and everything? I mean, did you have like a test fixture, or did you test it in another game? How did how did you do that work? Well, um, usually, usually, uh, what I had set up down here was exactly the same as uh, as what I had back at my desk at uh, at Data East and Sega, which was just a back box that had enough boards in it to uh, uh, to to power the dot matrix display, and then uh, had the uh, uh, had uh, the ROM socket uh, had. Uh, uh, a doohickey in it, using the technical term. That uh, yeah, an in EEPROM simulator, as it may be. Uh, I could just shoot code into, and then there was a uh, program on the PC that would actually send the uh, uh, send over the parallel port uh, the uh, uh, the codes to the display, uh, just like uh, just like the CPU of, of the of the pinball game would. So I could do all the testing from there. I just pass the. I just did the DOS prompt, type whatever the command was, and it would start this uh, start this thing that would pass the uh, that would pass these commands over to the display, and I just type stuff just like I was the CPU, hmm. and it would work. So, so I would do that down here, and then uh, um, and then the you know basically the thing was I would uh, uh, when I was down here, and that was you know over the period of like uh, six or eight months, I would. Uh, I would go up there, uh, I think four days a month. I'd come like the, uh, go up the first Monday, fly back the, fly back the next day, and then go up the third Monday and fly back the next day. And, uh, you know, I'd fly right into O'Hare. I'd leave here at like, uh, leave here on like a 6.30 flight or 7 a.m. flight, uh, land up there at like 8 o'clock, get a rental car, and I would be in the office, uh, be in the office like 9, stay there till like 9, Go, go uh, back to my parents' house and visit with them, and then come in and uh, uh, work till like six uh, on that Tuesday. And then uh, we were only about 15 minutes from O'Hare. Drive up, drop off the rental car, get on the 9 a.m. flight, uh, 9 p.m. flight uh, back to uh, back to Raleigh, and I'd be back home by midnight. Hmm. And uh, that it ended up actually being very cheap to do that those round trip tickets back then. Uh, uh, if you booked them in the right way, were about 150 bucks each. The rental car was ridiculous. I don't know, 14 dollars a day, and uh, you know didn't didn't cost much for gas. It was about a buck a gallon then, and uh, pay for my own food. And uh, you know they got a pretty cheap deal out of me. So I was a, I, I was a cheap date for them at that point. Now, what was the reaction at at um, at Sega Stern to Pinball 2000? And uh, you know, did you guys have any uh, headwind on that that product coming out? And and what was, you know, what was your feeling on it there at the company? Well, um, you know, we we pretty much knew that we couldn't we could never make a product like that, even if they didn't have it patented uh, patented this way and that, because uh, uh, you know we didn't have the staff to we didn't have the staff to program a video game and a pinball machine at the same time. Uh, in fact, we uh, we pretty much proved with Tattoo Assassins that we were not the right group to make a video game ever again. Uh, that uh, 
you know, we played it and, uh, um, you know, we, we didn't think that it was going to hit the price point that the market needed, that we, we didn't think that it was going to, that it was going to make that much more money, that it would justify itself. And, you know, just, just in terms of, just in terms of the play field, just personally, I, I, it didn't do much for me. It just, even when I play it now, it feels like it's short. It feels like it's a short game. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I shoot the ball up to the top of that, I don't get to see it. So, just didn't, it just, just for me personally, I didn't think it was, uh, I didn't think it was very, uh, very satisfying that, uh, uh, you know, if I had to choose between attack and revenge, I would play attack every time. You know, it was like they, I don't know, if, you know, they, they did a sequel to their, they did the sequel to their own, uh, to their own non-licensed theme, and I, I felt like the original was far superior. Okay. Of course, we uh, we tried really hard to get that uh, to get that episode one license, and uh, uh, you know Williams uh, Williams spent a lot of money to get it, and uh, quite frankly, uh, it was probably a good it was probably a good thing that they got it because I don't know that uh, I don't know that uh, that would have turned out to be such a great game for uh, Sega. Now you did also did Striker Extreme and the NFL series, which was based on Striker Extreme and uh, in Playboy while you were in in Raleigh, right? Yeah, and that's uh, down here in Durham, and that's an interesting story um, of how of how Striker happened. That they brought in this they brought in this guy who had who had graduated from I don't know DeVry or um, or. Uh, uh, IIT, Illinois Institute of Technology, with a computer science degree, and he was a pretty solid guy, uh, uh, you know, young guy, who did the who did the dots for Harley. Uh, I think Lonnie did did quite a bit of those dots too, you know, sort of worked with him and sort of brought him up to speed and and stuff like that. And the guy did it for you know the guy did it for one game, and uh, and he said you know after doing it he said well you know. I don't think there's really any future in this. I think I want to go uh, work for a web company. Uh, you know, writing all this old assembly language code. I just don't think uh, I don't think there's any career in it. So he walked away from it. And uh, um, so they brought me. So they so Lonnie called me up and said, "Hey, do you want to do a game? Do you want to do another game?" And I said, "Well, you know, I've got a I've got a real job now. Uh, so you know, I wouldn't be able to put as many hours into it." But uh, I'd be glad to I'd be glad to write you a proposal for how much you know how much it would cost you guys. So uh, so I went ahead and wrote the proposal. I'm like yeah yeah we want you to, we want you to go ahead and do it. So I had a regular uh, you know nine to six software job at that point, and uh, you know was was pretty busy busy with it. Uh, you know just got married. We're in a new house. It's like well you know this would be a nice way to uh, uh, to bring in a little money to uh, support the hobby. So. Uh, so I went ahead and did that, and uh, um, I think the I think the situation with that game was that uh, uh, was that Williams had closed pinball, and uh, they had people they you know they brought people in. Uh, I think they'd uh, I think they'd hired Keith and 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 Dwight at that point, um, which uh, which I thought was 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 really good for them to land that. Uh, that I'd known Keith from Rec Games Pinball from the early 90s. In fact, uh, he came up to Laurel at that uh, at that tilt uh, to play that Twilight Zone when it first came out. And 
actually got us kicked out of the place because he was trying to do death saves. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, Keith, Keith and Dwight had landed, but uh, uh, but uh, you know, they didn't want to throw them into that, into doing that system and trying to come up with a production game schedule. So uh, uh, so so that was why they brought me in. And then the NFL thing was was something that was was basically done to. Uh, to get rid of the extra stuff that they had left over from Stryker because nobody bought it, uh, sort of you know, turn the uh, turn the sow's ear into a silk purse by selling these NFL games for uh, you know four or five thousand dollars a pop, uh, but they didn't want it to impact their uh, impact their regular development schedule, so that was why Lonnie and I worked on it. That uh, uh, you know I was down here, I wasn't working for him then. And I think Lonnie was sort of in between projects, um, or maybe you know wasn't slated to do anything. So, so that way, uh, that way they could do this thing, and software-wise, it wouldn't hurt anything that was, uh, it wouldn't hurt anything that was going to be on the line. Did the did the NFL thing work? Did they sell those those unsold strikers? Um, yeah, I think they I think they managed to use up some parts. Um, you know. Uh, I personally had a lot of fun programming it. I thought it was a, I thought it was a neat idea. But I think the, I think the art package that they had was, uh, uh, like the back glasses and stuff. I didn't think it was, uh, I didn't think it was tremendously appealing, and I didn't think that the sound was. Uh, I didn't think the sound, at least as I saw it drafted, was really customized enough. I don't think it was customized enough for each team. That they, you know, that they needed to do more. We had talked about. We had talked about doing something like that before um, with uh, with Space Jam. We talked about making customized college basketball games out of that playfield for uh, you know alumni of uh, you know universities. You know how many uh, how many Michigan basketball games uh, could you sell in uh, you know could you sell in Michigan? Right. You know how many Kansas basketball games could you sell in Kansas if you had a customized right and had you know likenesses of former players on it? You could probably sell a bunch. Kentucky, yeah. you know those sort of big North Carolina, you know the the big basketball schools with the big alumni base. You know, buy one and buy one and put it in their uh, put it in their rec room or something like that. Not even play it, but just have it. Now, what was your involvement with uh, with Playboy with Stern's Playboy? Well, it was. It was interesting that uh, that I almost got involved with uh, uh, I almost got involved with Stern full time again at one point. That uh, uh, around the time of uh, PLD uh, PLD coming along, um, I was uh, which was of course Pat Lawler's you know coming in and doing Monopoly and those games. Yeah, exactly. That uh, the original plan for Monopoly. Was to have um, was to have at least some of the programming be done in house, and uh, uh, so they uh, uh, they talked about hiring me back uh, to do the dots for Pat's games, and uh, and the nice thing was that uh, uh, my friend Greg Dunlap uh, became available and uh, went to went to work for Pat right there, and that was. And that was good. That was that was a better solution than me working from here. Uh, and uh, it was great that uh, it was great that uh, that Greg got to uh, 
got to do some uh, some dot programming uh, because he he was really and continues to uh, to be in pinball. Uh, Greg is a Greg is a great person. I talk to him every day, uh, and uh, uh, you know I think he had uh, I think he had some good times there with uh, some good times there with Lewis. Uh, um, there was actually around the time of Playboy, um, there was sort of a, a, a gap in terms of uh, in terms of uh, staff that they didn't have anybody available to uh, uh, to do dots for Dwight's game. Uh, I think that was was uh, a bit because Keith was uh, becoming more involved in uh, in doing uh, in doing game design for uh, uh, stuff like Simpsons that he was you know really really not just driving the not just driving the rules and the programming but also the layout too uh you know really being uh really being a designer uh not you know obviously not drawing the mechanical parts but uh really sort of uh really sort of leading the project and uh when you're doing that obviously you don't want to be taking time off to uh, uh to program dots on somebody's game so uh uh you know they asked if I could do playboy and I said uh hey you know I'm I'm thinking about making a job change again. Um, you know, do you want, are, are you thinking about bringing somebody else on? And uh, uh, they said, you know, I don't know. Uh, we need to we need to think about that. We're going to get back to you. But do you want to do Playboy regardless? And I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. I have uh, had never worked with Dwight, and uh, uh, it sort of ended up morphing into a project where. Uh, uh, Lonnie and I were sort of tag teaming on the display. Lonnie Roth, that Lonnie would write code during the day, and I would write code at night. Uh, so he'd write, you know, he'd he'd work on it as much as many hours as he had during the day. And uh, then when I got home from my regular job, he would have, you know, sent me the latest changes or whatever. And then uh, and then I would get on and I would program for a few hours that night, you know, three or five hours or whatever it was, and I'd work on it over the weekend too. And 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 we got that done pretty well, and I think Playboy looked pretty good. I think I think Playboy had some, uh, I think Playboy had some pretty good dots. I really sort of tried to get in there and sort of get rid of some of that generic stuff, like um, like the high score font that that uh, that uh, was in a lot of the Stern games was uh, one of those generic display effects that I actually put in after Goldeneye. It was the Goldeneye font. And uh, somebody got it in their head that oh yeah that's the high score font it's like no it's just this font from Goldeneye it's actually kind of ugly <laughs> but it uh, it uh, it sort of uh, sort of ended up in there but uh, um, that uh, I was hoping that I was going to get on full time but uh, um, there was uh, um, at that time there was the great event of Lyman getting back into pinball and uh, they hired him full time and that uh, and that was excellent that uh, I think that's uh, Really been a strength of uh, uh, of Stern to uh, uh, to have Lyman on board. All the stuff that he did for their new system and everything. So, what was the thinking? A lot of these games, uh, you know, in the, I don't know, starting you know around Baywatch and and up to South Park were set up for as many as six players, but then they went back to four players. What was the thinking with this six versus four player thing? I think there are. I think the audits just showed that nobody ever used it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It just uh, it just wasn't a feature that uh, uh, wasn't a feature that was popular, and uh, uh, there was a there was a move to do more stuff with the dot matrix display to make it more interesting. Uh, you know, maybe you know some 
some non-traditional layouts, and uh, uh, I think they felt like they were sort of roped into roped into some uh, some some things as far as score display if they did have the six players. Right. So it just wasn't, you know, it's hard enough to find one person to play pinball, yeah. much less six. Right. Okay, one, uh, you know, to wrap this up, I've got, I had John for a long time, but one last question. What is the deal with lobsters? Well, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting story, uh, that, uh, uh, I was in the, uh, I was in the band at Duke, uh, for, that played at the football games and the basketball games, and, uh, uh, we went out to uh, the Final Four in Seattle in uh, 1989, and uh, we we're in the hotel just hanging out, talking about what we we're going to do to try and get on TV. And uh, we were by the gift shop, and there was this big lobster puppet in there. And I said, "Oh, you know, that that looks kind of fun. I think I should bring that to the game." So I went and I bought it, and uh, brought it to the game, and I put a Duke Blue Devil thing on the bottom of it, and uh, uh, and. People thought it was really kind of funny. It was just sort of a quirky thing. Uh, so for the next year, I had that, and I also made a hat that had a lobster on it and uh, managed uh, to uh, uh, to convince the band director that Rock Lobster would be a good song for the band to play. And uh, uh, that uh, later on that became uh, uh, my login uh, Back in the days at, at Duke, when you could actually choose something rather than just have it be some derivative of your initials or something like that, uh, that I had that be my uh, my email address, and uh, you know, sort of stuck. And it, it's funny that uh, uh, the band uh, the band still plays Rock Lobster at all the games. The cheerleaders do uh, do a dance to it. That there was a uh, there was a basketball player uh, uh, Shane Battier uh, who plays in the NBA now, who was here at Duke. Who actually did uh, um, did the cheerleaders rock lobster dance as part of a, a step show um, on campus, and it actually got shown on ESPN uh, that they showed that as part of one of the the lead-ins to one of the one of the Duke basketball games that they showed. So it's funny that lobsters had that uh, that that you know that that it sort of sort of spiraled from that one thing and had that effect. But uh, so that was why that was why I had login as my login was lobster. And you know I've sort of kept that in, uh, kept that through in uh, various incarnations. I had a uh, Duke basketball website called Lobster Devil, which is where my email address is. Actually, uh, um, basically my big hobby now uh, that's sort of even surpassed pinball is that uh, uh, I do media coverage for Duke women's basketball. I have a website called dwhoops.com that uh, uh, I take uh, pictures at games. I've got a partner who's a writer. And uh, uh, you know we covered the NCAA tournament and ACC tournament and you know all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, but uh, so there's not a lot of lobsters on that website. But uh, I did uh, I did manage to uh, sneak uh, quite a few lobsters into uh, into the games uh, uh, when I was uh, at Data East and Sega. There's uh, of course the lobster pops in uh, the lobster bonus in Baywatch, uh, which uh, I believe is when you get the when you get the uh, uh, when you get uh, three of the same skill shot, it gives you the lobster bonus and shows the lobsters. Uh, and I think there was I think the uh, brain bug in uh, 
in Starship Troopers in the match when he's thinking about stuff he uh, he occasionally thinks of a lobster in addition to some other stuff I think there's actually a picture of me in there too uh, that he thinks of uh, when he's going <laughs> before he blows up and the num- and the match number is inside of him I thought that was the I thought that was probably the funniest match sequence that we had uh, but that that's sort of the backstory on uh, that's sort of the backstory on lobster. Well, cool. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Well, I, I don't think so. I think uh, I, I can't tell you everything I'm thinking about because I'm supposed to talk at Expo next. Uh, supposed to talk at Expo next October, so I don't want to give uh, give all the secrets away. But uh, I think that's uh, that, I think we've pretty much covered everything. That uh, and uh, definitely some uh, some good questions. All right. Well, I wanna I wanna thank you. I really really appreciate. You know, Oren Day coming on Top Cast and talking to us. I really do appreciate the time. Th- uh, thanks again. Oh yeah, well, it was uh, it was great. Uh, uh, really glad to uh, share some of these memories and uh, hope that uh, hope that it was interesting. Great interview, long interview, but a really great one. I really do uh, like it when these guys just open up and talk. Um, really appreciate that, uh, and I hope you all come back and listen to us again here on Top Cast. The- Pinball Radio Talk Show.